1: Mountain cold
2: refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly.
3: Hey, it's Gonzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome
0: to
4: The Baldcast, a production of John Bald Baldface Truth. the Pac-West Center in downtown Portland. Presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald-Faced Truth.
3: It was a pretty newsy day today. Uh, Not just in the Pac-12 footprint, but newsy in general. Coming out of an NBA uh, playoff game in the Western Conference last night where the Warriors, uh, not Warriors, the Lakers and the Nuggets uh, were wrapped up in a mile-high affair that made uh, LeBron and some of his teammates look a little old. Uh, We'll talk about that on today's show. Mike Bone, the athletic director at USC, has resigned. We will dive into that. We will talk with Mark Madsen, the new coach at Cal, on today's show as well. Uh, Pac-12 releasing some figures. We'll get to the bottom of what the numbers mean. Pac-12 saying that uh, they set a record year, record number for uh, their media, not their media rights, but their overall distribution. We'll take a peek at that as well. Jim Brown, may he rest in peace, a power runner with sprinter speed. Jim Brown, one of a kind. I think in nine seasons he led the NFL eight times in rushing. Never missed a game. That was Jim Brown. Uh, Passed away, his wife said, last night. We have a lot to talk about. It's weird. Like, sometimes these days just happen, and, you know, you couldn't have predicted that, you know, the NBA – Western Conference Final and the passing of Jim Brown would line up. Uh, Mike Bone at USC looks like there is a medical issue that he is going to leave to take care of. But we'll encapsulate it all on today's show. Plus, we have great guests today. Uh, I mentioned Mark Madsen, the Cal coach. He'll be along here in Hour 1. I want to talk to Mark Madsen about, you know, he is the quintessential Stanford guy, is he not? Like, he is a Stanford guy. When you think about... Stanford basketball, he's one of the first players that pops into my mind. Casey Jacobson pops into my mind, of course. Uh, there are a few others, but I think about Mark Madsen. I think about uh, a Stanford team that played in the Final Four and, and uh, Madsen now at Cal. So what? how does a Stanford guy, um, you know, get the job done at Cal? And uh, so many questions for Madsen as it relates to kind of, you know, he's, he's got to recruit to Cal, where we all, which we all know. It's a difficult place to recruit to, given the trance facility. I want to know what Madsen's strategy is as it pertains to building a winner at Cal. Also, uh, we'll just talk to him in general about the Pac-12 conference, the NBA. Does he have good stories about Shaq and playing in the NBA? We'll talk to Madsen about that coming up uh, later this hour. In Hour 2, it'll be the John Wilner Show. We will dive deep on the numbers as the Pac-12 is released Their fiscal year, 2021-2022 distributions, they uh, did that this morning. Um, It raised some eyebrows. Uh, It looks to me like Larry Scott's era of spending ended, so to speak, at the end of that fiscal year. By the end of it, uh, George Kiyofkoff was well underway. Numbers starting to look better, at least from the expense, the expenditure point. uh, point. And, you know, maybe we'll tell some Larry Scott stories in Hour 2 with John Wilner. Who will join us to talk about that? Plus, we'll talk an hour or two about the greatest home field advantage in the Pac Twelve Conference. You know, we touched around it yesterday on the show, and I wrote about it some today at Johnconzano.com. Um, you know, I think I think from my vantage point, if we're talking about the home field advantages in the Pac Twelve Conference, the schools that are, I think, are contenders for the title of best home field advantage in college football in the Pac Twelve uh, obviously Utah and Rice-Eccles Stadium. I think Oregon and Autzen Stadium's in the conversation just because of the crowd and the sellout streak that they had once upon a time and just sort of the atmosphere of the fans. Just It feels like the fans are right there on top of you at the stadium. Uh, I think also Washington is in this conversation. Uh, part of Washington's appeal is the fan base. Part of it is the stadium's pretty uh, beautiful on the uh, edge of Lake Washington there. Uh, well, t- I, I think Oregon State is in that conversation as well when you talk about home field advantage. And I don't mean it necessarily from, hey, it was really loud inside Research Stadium in the last couple seasons. I just mean it as they they very rarely lost football games. And in fact, you look back at the last two football seasons that Oregon State has played at Research Stadium. Uh, they lost one game. They lost to USC. 17-14, their only loss, a three-point loss at home uh, against USC, and uh, they have been very good, you know, uh, dramatically better at home than they are on the road, and I think you have to give some credit there to Research Stadium, and so we'll talk about that. And also, like, do you think Colorado suddenly will emerge as a formidable home field? Folsom Field is really pretty. Like, I I often include Folsom Field as one of my top three or four when it comes to the athletic aesthetics of the stadium like when the walk up to the stadium uh the the lights the mountains the uh the clear blue skies on a day game the the uh you know the red sky uh, as the sun sets uh you know with the mountains behind it in the lights of Folsom field i always think of it as you know it's really pretty it's like put it on a postcard but um i've never really thought at least in this generation since the last 25 27 years that colorado and their home field and their fans were a problem. And I'm wondering, with Coach Prime and a sold-out stadium, if that will change, will Colorado emerge as one of those stadiums we talk about in the coming years as having this great home field advantage? We'll uh, keep an eye on that. We'll talk about it with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, uh, among other things. And I heard something else today that was really interesting from uh, another writer in the Pac-12 conference. You know, we've all kind of... Thought about name, image, likeness, and the amount of money that is out there for high-level players. And I think when NIL first came onto the scene, let's just say about a year ago, um, you know, there were players like Cam Ward, who at Washington State got a deal that was worth eighty to ninety thousand dollars. He got fifty thousand dollars in walking-around money. He got the use of a pickup truck. He got an apartment. He got some flights for his family. The total package was somewhere between eighty or ninety thousand dollars. And I thought, gosh, you know, a really good quarterback in the Pac-12, not hard to get a six-figure deal. If Cam Ward from Incarnate Word was getting eighty or 90000 to go to Washington State, like, you know, what would Bo Nix get? What would Michael Penix Jr. get to come back? Um, and the numbers we've often talked about are like high six figures, low seven figures. But I had another writer say that uh, he believes that the numbers are much higher than that. That it's possible that Michael Penix Jr. is uh, got, you know, not just barely into the seven figures, but may have a deal worth more than $3 million to return for another season at Washington. And if he's getting that, you start to speculate about what Bo Nix might have received from Division Street. And I just want to throw this out there because a lot of us cringe when we talk about the transfer portal, when we talk about name image likeness. I know I do. I, I look at it and I go, gosh, I have such mixed feelings about this. Like, on one hand, it's great that the players are sharing in the success, the revenue success that the athletic departments are having. And, you know, I'm a big believer in that. Like, you know, the people and the individuals involved that directly impact the success, the players, the coaches, the support staff, they should all share in the success, the financial success of the product. And and so I'm okay with that, but I'm simultaneously turned off by, the idea that you have unrestricted free agency every year. Everybody's on a one-year deal, if it's a one-year deal. It could be like a nine-month deal, if you really think about it. And so I really had mixed feelings about it. But I just started to think about, you know, if we really are talking about deals that push toward $2 million, $3 million, $4 million for the return of a quarterback who might have dipped their toe into the NFL draft pool that Bo Nix says, no, 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 I'll come back. Michael Penix Jr. says, okay, I'll come back. I'll spend another year in college for that kind of money. Are we really talking about a largely positive byproduct, or is it problematic when you talk about money? Because I've always felt like, you know, at least always, like for the last few months I thought, this is really problematic. I don't like the way it feels. Gosh, I'm glad the players can share in some success and some financial Uh, You know wins, but I don't want free agency every year I want players to stay in school where it makes sense and I want to get to know them and I want to watch them grow and but now I'm kind of looking at the system and I'm going is it all that bad if if Bo Nix is getting two or three million dollars like we Don't know that but there's speculation out there is Caleb Williams deals are pushing above four million dollars for this season there's some speculation out there that Michael Penix Jr. might be in the two to $3 million range, and Bo Nix might be right in there as well. And if they are, and this is why they're coming back for another season of college football, is this necessarily a bad thing? It makes the college game better. It certainly would prolong their careers. Like, you know, I, I can't imagine that, you know, Michael Penix Jr. or Bo Nix, you know, they're not like sure things. I think Penix is going to be a great pro, but Bo Nix is not a sure thing to to uh, stick in the NFL for any length of time, if this NIL stuff is keeping him in college and allowing him to have sort of a minor league career, is it necessarily a bad thing? I think it potentially is a really positive byproduct. And, you know, the money, it always surprises us like when we see contracts, right? We see professional players who suddenly are getting uh, large amounts of money. And it's—and I'm not talking about the Patrick Mahomes contracts. I'm not talking about Tom Brady contracts. I'm talking about like Jalen Hurts. I'm talking, you know, about Justin Herbert. When we see that Jalen Hurts gets 255 million dollars for 5 years, it 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 makes it jars you. It's stunning to to think about the 110 million dollars in fully guaranteed money. 179 million guaranteed in the event of of injury. And if he plays out, he's two, that's a $255 million contract over five years. It makes you start to go, wait a minute, that's $51 million a year or so? And you start, it's jarring, isn't it? Um, you know, I think we're going to start to see some jarring reports come out of college sports, uh, particularly with college basketball and college football, where you're going to see some players who are getting money that we probably weren't aware that they're getting we got a great show for you today. Steven's in studio. Stephen, you're going to do the 5 at 5. Anna's on the road today uh, with her dad in Taiwan. Uh, I heard from her this morning. She is uh, with her father, and uh, he seems to be doing all right. And uh, we, we booked him a one-way ticket coming back to – we're trying to turn him into an Oregonian. So uh, he's coming back from Taiwan, and it looks like he is uh, – Probably gonna be staying with us. Is this a is this a good thing for me? Should I should I be celebrating this? I think I should. You know, family coming home.
5: Definitely be celebrating. I think this is what Anna would want. So you know, as long as uh, she's happy with it, I think you should be happy with it.
3: She is. She said she got him to co- you know convinced him to spend the summer in Oregon. Isn't that how it starts for all of us? You know, come spend the summer in Oregon. You know, they, it's not. It's great. The summers are great, and then then it starts. You know, maybe in December because Taiwan's an island essentially. It's very tropical and. And uh, you know a lot of good seafood, and I think I think that what what will hit him is probably November December when he, when he realizes he's been duped.
5: <laughs> I mean, it still gets me, and I've lived here my whole life. It's just like, oh yeah, this is how bad November December is. I I forget yeah. every single year.
3: I say that as I drive, and my wipers are going full speed, and I'm on I five traveling to a football game or or whatnot, and I and I can't see, and I'm going, why do we live here? Uh, but then, I, then I'm then i reminded on a day like today why we live here. Uh, let's talk NIL for just a second. You know, I, I'm wrestling with the numbers. And, you know, a friend of mine who covers college sports says today, you know, hey, I believe Pennix Jr. and Bo Nix, they might be pushing towards $3 million, these guys. Does, how does that sit with you as as a fan, as a media member? If NIL is keeping guys in college and turning it into essentially – a B-League for professional football, is it necessarily a bad thing? Is there, you know, aside from the free agency field that none of us like?
5: I don't I don't think it's a bad thing because what it does, it just it makes the, the product better, right? And, you know, the thing about college basketball, I'm a big college basketball guy, but I understand the product's not great and players leave all the time. Now with NIL money, we're seeing guys stay, you know, an extra year. Before Bo Nick's, Michael Penix Jr., they would have been gone. You know, if they were if they were in the college football ten years ago, they're gone to the NFL. Now they're back for another year. And it's something that we're looking forward to now in the Pac twelve with all these quarterbacks coming back. Like these guys will be back. And I, I think it's gonna happen over and over where these fringe first, second round picks, especially in football, like they may come back for another season just because they can make a lot of money, they can have some more fun in college, and I think it's just more fun with the atmosphere. So I think it's a good thing. Um, you know the free agent feel. Yeah, it's gonna take some time to get used to, but I do think like as long as there's no shady business going on, which remains to be seen. You know, if, if, it'll be interesting to see when one of these NIL committees give some money out, and then the player doesn't perform well, or they yeah. just sit out. What happens then? But I think right for right now, like it's good because it's providing some stability. Right, we remember watching Bo Nix last season. We Remember watching Michael Penix Jr. So I, I think it's good all around uh, for now. I think it could get bad, but right now there hasn't been any problems, so I think it's good,
3: yeah, I think you know you you raise good points because I think you know any donor who's giving a significant amount of money, you know let's just use Division Street Inc or um damnation Collective, Oregon states Collective as an example, if you're giving a significant amount of money to one of those collectives, you want to see it spent well. It's just like people who pay taxes, right? Anybody who pays taxes can relate to this, you know here comes April fifteenth. And you know maybe you're writing a check or maybe uh, you're looking at your tax return and you're saying okay this is how much I paid in taxes this year and what you want at least what I want is ideally to look at the number that is on that piece of paper and I want to say hey that's being utilized well I feel good about that what we don't want and what and what I hear every April fifteenth is people who go hey I would feel better about you know writing that check or paying those taxes uh, out of your uh, out of your uh, you know, your paycheck every uh, week or every two weeks or every month, uh, I'd feel better about it if the, if I knew the money was being utilized right. And so I think that that same philosophy will play forward with the collectives. It's it's a little bit like a 501c3, like a nonprofit, even though it's not. It's, you know, hey, what does everybody ask when you go to write a check to a nonprofit organization? You want to know, hey, uh, you know, is this money actually getting to the people that it needs to help like is it uh, what percentage uh, of your donations actually get to the cause or what's your overhead or do you have a CEO or in CFO and director of development that are all you know sucking you know 25 or 40 cents out of every dollar into administrative expenses and so I think there's going to be a reckoning when you get some of the collectives who are going hey man we just you know I wrote a $50,000 check and my guy You know, I felt good about him going there and then, you know, he transferred somewhere else or he didn't produce. Or in the case of Jaden DeLore at Arizona, you know, he turns out he had a civil lawsuit involving a sex assault. And like uh, suddenly you're like, hey, can I get my money back? And you can't in that scenario because of how those deals are structured. So I think that's one tentacle. Another one is obviously what happens when said player isn't playing and you have uh, a coach who's going, hey, um, it's great that everybody gave money to get this recruit, but I got somebody better who's on roster, and, you know, the collective isn't invested in that player. So do you get a lot of belly aching at the annual, uh, you know, luncheon, or the weekly luncheon, or the monthly luncheon, where donors are coming up to the coach going, hey, how come you're not playing the guy that I helped get to the program? But, I think you're right about the quality of play, and I hadn't considered that, I feel stupid for not considering it. Like, the quality of play in college football, the quality of play in the Pac-12 is going to be better this year. You know, you're going to have five or six ranked teams in the preseason polls, and a big piece of that is Bo Nix comes back to Oregon. Michael Penix Jr. uh, comes back to Washington. Caleb Williams is back at USC, obviously. Uh, Oregon State gets DJ Uyunglele. And Cam Rising comes back to Utah. I mean, all of those cases were impacted by NIL. Caleb Williams goes from Oklahoma to USC. Yeah, Lincoln Riley was there, but so was a bunch of opportunities in Southern California. Bo Nix comes to Oregon Division Streets all over that. Fingerprints are all over it. Michael Penix Jr. comes back at Washington. You know, they thought he was gone. You heard Kalen DeBoer this last week uh, on the show just a couple days ago. On this show, and you know, he he talked about, hey, we thought it was his final hurrah, and hey, guess what? He gets one more. All of that is going to make the Pac-12 better. It's going to make it a better conference. It's going to make it more enjoyable to watch games. That's a good byproduct and, of NIL, and it builds a
5: lot of momentum for the fans. I mean, you talk about Michael Penix; thought he was gone, he's out there saying, you know what? We got unfinished business. We're trying to get to the college football playoff. We're trying to win national championships. Like that's just going to get everyone riled up. I also think it's good that you know. We can't be naive enough to think that they weren't getting paid before. Now they're getting paid and it's all, you know, there's it's documented stuff, so it's not under the table, it's not just, you know, $100 handshakes. I think that's also good for the game. And you're right. Like this is just it just builds a lot of momentum. But the last thing is John, I think it can bring excitement for a program that didn't have any if you make the right move, if you invest. Look at Colorado, one win last season, they go on the transfer portal, they get a lot of money, they get coach Prime, Who knows if it's going to work? We have no idea. But you know what? They're one of the most exciting teams to talk about right now in college football. Like, this wouldn't have happened five years ago, but now that money's involved, NIL's involved, you know, the transfer portal's in, Colorado's the most talked about team in college football, and they had one win a season ago. So I think as long as you're investing money into the program, like, you can bring excitement. Even Arizona State, you talked to um, Brad Denny yesterday. Kenny Dillingham's bringing excitement back. No more apathy there. I I think it's a lot of good uh, that's come from the NIL.
3: All right, we're going to talk on that note to Mark Madsen, the new coach at Cal. How's he using NIL? How can Cal participate in, with the transfer portal and the academic requirements? Stanford great Mark Madsen now at Cal, plus maybe some stories about Shaq and the NBA. Leave it here. Our next guest uh, grew up in the Bay Area. is born in Walnut Creek, went to high school at San Ramon Valley High School. Attended college at Stanford, drafted in the first round of the NBA draft in the year 2000, uh, played with the Lakers, also uh, helped Stanford uh, to the Final Four, and uh, was a fantastic run that Stanford went on. Mark Madsen's now the head coach at Cal. Uh, we've talked about Cal in the last year. Uh, listeners may remember I went on the road, I did a whole deep dive on, hey, you know, what's going on at Cal? Why are they struggling? And I like the hire, and Mark Madsen is here to talk about what his plan and his vision is for Cal. Thanks for joining us, Coach.
1: John, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. It's great, great to reconnect with you.
3: Yeah, you bet. Look, let's, uh, let's just start with, you know, Stanford guy. Like you are, the, you are, like when I think about Stanford basketball, you're one of the two or three players that pops into my head, and yet you're at Cal. How does that feel to you? How did that feel as you were interviewing and, and looking at the job?
1: You know, it's it's interesting because uh, you know obviously when when uh, Cal had a vacancy and, and they reached out and, and we and we you know in every conversation that I had with Cal, my, my excitement about the job grew, uh, my excitement about the opportunity grew, and you know everything is proving out as I've now been on the job for six to eight weeks. It's there is a huge commitment at Cal to win and to win big. And that just has caused me so much excitement. <clears throat> and obviously, uh, I love my alma mater. I, I went there for undergraduate. I went back there for graduate work. And I'll always be grateful and, and just great, great friendships and experiences. But I'm at Cal now, and I'm, I'm diving in completely, and I love it.
3: Yeah, you're not the only guy, too. Uh, it, was, it was interesting to see Mike Montgomery kind of, you know, bounce over to Cal as well and, and prove that you could do it. You know, you can do it well at either place. Um, you know, you move your staff, uh, your assistant coaches, uh, to the East Bay Area. We all know, look, I lived in that region. I was working at the Mercury News once upon a time. I know it's, a, it's one of the most expensive places to live. How do, you, how do you assemble a staff? How do you get your staff to do that, you know, knowing that, hey, families are involved. It's, a, it's you know, it's more than just basketball. It's cost of living and all that stuff.
1: Well the good, the good news is you know Cal has definitely stepped up and so it's we're, we're definitely competitive with all the teams in the Pac12 that the cost of living absolutely is high the good news is that there's a number of you know bedroom communities and there's a number of uh, you know communities that are close by from Emeryville to you know some areas of San Francisco to even Walnut Creek where you know you have you have great public transportation going to you know to and from a lot of these cities and you know a lot of people that come here as you know they love it they love it and and you find ways around the traffic and you really embrace the the great culture and the geography and the people of the bay area
3: you got a good staff i mean you know i i talked to other coaches in the conference and they said hey madsen's putting together a good staff uh your approach your vision you know what are you selling right now when you sell hey come to cal play come play for us now
1: well, a lot of things. I mean, first and foremost, two things come to mind. Number one, it's going to be academics. The, the, the Cal degree, Cal is the best public institution in the, in the country and really in the world. And, and it's one of the top educations in the world, regardless of public or private. And so first and foremost, that, that Cal degree really sells itself. And it's really allowed us <clears throat> to get into a lot of conversations with players in the portal, players coming out of high school, it, it will allow us a lot of inroads internationally. You know, we've we've already made some plans and and having some contacts over there helps. And so, you know, the degree number one, number two, style of play. Well, one of the one of the things that that I think is going to be unique and and special in terms of how we play is a lot of quick hitters, a lot of NBA actions, and then the pace of play is going to be fast. We want to play fast. We realize that. A lot of times, for example, an early three, an early open three in transition or early in the shot clock can be a gold mine analytically. And so I want to encourage our players to, to play with great pace. We want to be in tremendous shape. We want to have the physical endurance and stamina to not only play fast, you know, for portions or for bursts in the game, but we want to do it consistently and we want to be able to do it late in the game um, as, as a style of play.
3: Mark Madsen with us Cal basketball coach, you know, as I did my dive on Cal and kind of figure out what happened, why you know why why is this program struggling? and one of the things that came up was the lack of a practice facility, another came another issue was you know some donors had just sort of uh you know checked out a little bit it It looks like the donors are back in boor, on board. I did see a report you know that there may be some plans for a practice facility. How are you feeling on that front? Well,
1: I'm feeling I'm feeling excited about everything, John. And, and let's you know, to be honest, while I was preparing, you know, for, for the Cal interview and for the Cal interviews, you know, you do your research. I you you have an extensive piece on that you wrote. I, I believe you traveled with the team that they, yeah. they were playing in Salt Lake City, and, and yep. you you have a a fair piece where, where you talk about one issue, for example, the charters. Yeah. And and that was addressed head on by Jim Knowlton, and I can say this that. You know, as as we roll out this this new year and the new program, there's not a school in the country that's going to be able to negative recruit on uh, on that issue, for example, of the charters, because it's, you know, many steps have been taken and it's no one's going to be able to use that against us in the future. And and your piece was was excellent. Um, Again, critical, but fair, critical, but fair. Um, The second piece on the practice facility is, you know, a lot of things are moving in that direction. And I'm probably not, not the most qualified or or, or the the person with the most expertise to be able to speak about the the new practice facility. But I can tell you that meetings with donors have occurred. They are occurring. The plans are drawn up and this is going to happen. This is going to happen. You know, other people at Cal are more, are more equipped to be able to go into details Mm -hmm. on that practice facility, but there's momentum. There's excitement and. In, in short order, in a period of time, no one's going to be able to use that against Cal either in recruiting. Yeah,
3: yeah, and I thought it was one of those things as I talked to other coaches, like I talked to Dana Altman about it, Andy Enfield about it, and I said, you know, how important are the charters? And they said, you know, it's it's vital, you know, because it affects the athletes as students because, you know, you're getting back late on a on a Saturday night or a Sunday, and then here comes study time or class or whatever, and – and then it also affects your ability to recruit because, you know, some of the programs that traveled by Charter were able to play a game and then get back, and a coach could get out recruiting and then get back for practice. And, and those who didn't were, you know, stuck in an airport or spending an extra day somewhere. So I think it was it was a huge thing. And back in the day, though, at Stanford, like, when you guys traveled, you probably remember the good old days. Like, you know, it, I don't think anybody was traveling at tr- Charter at that point. <laughs>
1: I, I, the only charter we ever went on, and I think we went on two or three, was to the NCAA tournament. And uh, other than that, we, we were on Southwest, going up to, <laughs> going up to Seattle, going up to yeah. Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> I mean, And then we were taking the bus out, out, to, out to Pullman, Washington State. And so th- things have definitely changed. But, but like you say, it's in the best interest of the student-athletes. And, and really in terms of performance, players need rest. Pl- players need recuperation. Players need the ability. There is so much stress and pressure as athletes, and so the charter really absolutely helps a lot.
3: Mark Madsen with us, Cal basketball coach. Um, it's a big lift, and but you, I think you can sell to kids right now, hey, come play. There's playing time available. I think that's the silver lining of a season that ended the way last year did. Um, the academic requirements at Cal, it, it it's sometimes talked about as, hey, it's really difficult to get transfers but you look at historically there have been some great players who came in that that came in via transfer what is sort of that landscape help walk us through how difficult the academic requirements are at cal or maybe how you have to balance that as a coach who's recruiting
1: yeah i mean one of the great things about cal is that there are very high standards academically and so there's there's a certain percentage and a certain group of players that we're able to recruit. And that should never be viewed as a negative because by the same token, I think that, you know, obviously Cal has multiple missions. One mission is to be one of the best universities in the world. And it is another mission is to open up opportunities for, for those that that may not have had all of the advantages that, for example, another player had in a different geography. Examples would be, you know, why penalize a player that was at a public school that had very little funding, that uh, maybe the resources were not there for that player? So Cal takes kind of a universal and a a bird's eye view, and they take everything into account. Because, um, you know, the opportunity to to share the Cal degree is also a tremendous mantle that Cal takes very seriously. What, What Cal wants to see is, effort, energy, performance from a prospective student athlete. And if those things are there, um, you you know, sometimes there are ways to to help that student athlete achieve their potential, their full potential, not only on the court, but also in the classroom.
3: And I think, you know, you look at this conference, it's a good conference. I think basketball, you look at, uh, especially this season coming up, you're going to have UCLA, Arizona, Oregon, um, and some teams that really have, made an impact. How quickly do you think talent-wise that you guys can compete?
0: We
1: want to compete right away. We, we will compete right away. We we will be we, – we, we are going to be a team that other teams do not want to try to prepare for. We're going to throw different defenses out there. We're going to play fast. We're going to have a lot of different offensive schemes with great spacing, and every action is going to have a counter. And so it's going to be hard to steal our calls. It's going to be hard to prepare against us because we are coming to this conference guns a-blazing. You know, very few teams go 31-0 in, in the non-conference and in the regular season. But we are coming into this conference to make a mark and to be extremely competitive and hopefully to win a conference championship in year one.
3: It's fantastic, uh, and uh, the energy in general, I think, just needs to be there. Like that—that that was the thing that it, that it struck me the most because I grew up, you know, in the Bay Area, and it was probably in a, you know, it was in a, in a heyday of Cal basketball when Jason Kidd was at Cal, and it was, you know, and, and there was just there was just good play, and and Lamont Murray was there, and it was it was. Um, always viewed as a contender. And so it was kind of sad for me to see last season, just the lack of energy. And I think you've brought that back. Mark Madsen is with us, Cal basketball coach, Um, your time in the NBA. How did, how does that shape you as a coach?
1: The NBA is the best league in the world. It's the best league in the world for a lot of reasons. Number one, first and foremost, you have the best players. Number two, you have the best coaches. The, the level of coaching in the NBA is off the charts when, and, and that's not to take anything away from the NCAA games. Um, you, you know, a, a team that wins the national championship in college, probably, you know, they might play, you know, 36 to 38 games. They're, depending on if they're in a, an MTV or not. Um, and depending on different things in an NBA season the you know, if you win the championship, there's going to be up to 120 games in a season. And so right there, you almost have four times as many games, almost, almost four times as many games in the NBA in one year as you have in college. Well, why does that matter? That matters because that's four times as many opportunities to attack an opponent, four times as many opportunities for an opponent to try to stymie your offense. And so there's so many more inputs. You see so many additional and – and random scenarios that you do not see in college strictly based on the number of games that are played. Um, secondly, the, 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 the talent level. The, the, the talent level when it comes to coaching, the X, S, and O's. You have entire debar- uh, departments that, that are completely dedicated to the study of analytics. And so the player tendencies are, are that much more apparent and that much more known going in every single game. And so um, the NCAA NCAA game is fantastic. And in some ways, what makes the NCAA game so fun is that there's so much more riding on every single game. And so there's going to be – you're almost going to have playoff energy, NBA playoff energy, in almost every game uh, during the regular season. And and so I I think the two can complement each other. And and there's a lot of uh, good things that are different about both.
3: Did you reach back out to any of the past Cal coaches as you were doing your diligence or maybe even after you took the job to get some input and advice?
1: Yes. Yes. I've spoken to, I've spoken to uh, at least three uh, of the past Cal coaches and, you know, to, to learn from their experience, it can only help. I've, you know, spoken with past assistant coaches. I've spoken with past players and, you know the bottom line is I need I need help I, I need support you know there's no such thing as a one-man show everything that is accomplished is done by team the the concept of team even the success that we've had recruiting so far our assistant coaches at Cal have done an outstanding job in putting out a huge broad net nationally and internationally and signing some tremendous tremendous players we've had Unbelievable support from administration. We've had fantastic support from Cal fans, boosters, and supporters. And so this whole thing, you know, is a huge team endeavor.
3: It's it's fun to see this. And I think a lot of our listeners and people here, you know, across the Pac-12 footprint who listen to this show are going to be interested to see kind of what you do and and what and what you make of this job? But you know, I know that uh, Cal's happy to have you. I know there's a lot of renewed enthusiasm. I'm also looking across college sports. You know, I saw a story today where Rutgers lost. Uh, you know, a, an upperclassman who's a graduate transfer who suddenly went, "Hey, I got a better NIL deal somewhere else. I'm leaving." How, how that, that's that's way different than the college experience you were at, involved in in Stanford, where you've got uh, you know unrestricted free agency pretty much every year now in college sports. How comfortable are you with that, or where do you stand on, you know, does the NCAA need to put some guardrails on this thing?
1: Well, let, let, let's first acknowledge what you said. It, it is so incredibly different, John. Um, an example. <laughs> when I was a senior, when I was a junior going on a senior at Stanford, I went out to the Pete Newell big man camp um, in Hawaii, and, I, and my roommate was Jake Foskel, and so – you know, we're in there with NBA players, and, and it was completely illegal from an NCAA standpoint. And one of the NBA players, Brad Miller, said, Hey, I rented a fishing boat. You guys want to come out fishing with me? And Jake and I said, Yes. And so I think the boat was priced $350. He paid for it. We had no pre existing relationship with Brad. He was not a booster at Connecticut or at Stanford. We went out the boat, we didn't catch any fish. I got motion sickness, and I threw up. Well, wind of this hit Stanford, and I ended up having to – it was basically some type of secondary violation. I had to write a check, and I had to donate it to the charity of my choice, which I chose, you know, I think the Red Cross at that time. And so that, that, that was a random fishing trip. You know, my portion probably wasn't even 350. It was probably a third of that, whatever the case may be. Well, now, like you said, here's the reality right now. If a player is having success in college basketball, most players have Instagram and Twitter. They're getting hit up by smart, enterprising agents that, agents that hustle. Agents are doing their job because they're hitting up the players and saying, hey, you're, making, you're not making anything at the school you're at. You could make X amount of dollars if, if uh, you know, you come with me and I'm going to shop you to all the Power 5 schools. And the dollar amounts are, are growing every year, but, but that inbox, that Instagram inbox is getting blown up by the top players every single year. And it's and it just, there needs to be regulation. There needs to be congressional action. Um, there needs to be more, <clears throat> there needs to be stronger guidelines on how this is all done because right now it's the wild, wild West.
3: Yeah, we don't even know what players are getting. Like, I, you know, I keep hearing stories, and in the, in the numbers escalate, and I I just think some transparency would be the first thing. Just, like, what is happening? I would want to know what's happening. <laughs> first of all, we don't know what's happening, which is a problem. Like, you know, you're in the NBA. You know, we, we get a spreadsheet that says, here's what Mark Madsen made. Here's what Shaq made. You know, here's what the cap number was. And, you know, the Lakers paid a luxury tax or whatnot. You know, you all sort of – understand what is happening But i think in college sports we're not even sure like we suspect what's happening but we don't really know do we
1: well, we have no idea and as we recruit players you know out of the portal we we hear all kinds of things and the truth is you have no idea what's true and what's not
3: mark madsen with us I heard the story about Shaq taking you out, getting you on a shopping spree. What was that? What was that relationship like with Shaq? And is that story true? Did he take you out, get you a wardrobe, car? Let
1: me tell you. Let, let me tell you the story. First of all, the story is true. Um, so, so Shaq and I kind of, uh, you know, he kind of took me under his wing. Here I am, a new rookie in LA, a new rookie at the Lakers, and he kind of, for whatever reason, he just—he was going to help me. I mean, he's a great teammate to everybody. But but first of all, Shaq's a great friend. He's a great person, and so the day that he was going to sign a contract extension in the preseason, you know, a forty to fifty million dollar contract extension, he, he sent me a message. He said he said, "Be at the press conference because we're going. Uh, I'm going to take you out shopping afterwards." And so I was there for the press conference. After he signed the extension, we got in his Bentley, and he drove me to a dealership in Manhattan Beach and he basically took me straight to the CEO of the dealership and he said this is mad dog we're getting him a new car and and yeah <laughs> you know and Shaq wanted to buy, you know he wanted to buy the car he wanted to put the down payment down i, I, I insisted that he that he couldn't uh, it just didn't feel right i said Shaq i'm in the nba now too i'm i'm going to you know uh, let let me let me do this myself and so, but but he was such a generous person so then we get back in the bentley <clears throat> we drive up to the beverly center up in Beverly Hills. And we're walking around the mall, and lo and behold, there's J.R. J. Ryder, one of our teammates. <laughs> and so Shaq says, we're going to the Rolex store. So we walk into the Rolex store, and he said, Shaq said, I'm going to get a Rolex for every single member of the team because there's no way I get this contract extension of 40 to $50 million without every single member of the team. He looks at me, and he says, choose any Rolex you want. So I immediately... <clears throat> find the cheapest Rolex in the case. Cause I'm not trying to put Shaq out. He's right. so generous. So I choose the, the cheapest one. And he says, Jr. Pick your Rolex. Well, Jr. He, he, he picks one that's diamond encrusted. I mean, it's got diamond. <laughs> it looks nice, you know? And, uh, and, and Shaq got both of those for Jr. and I, and then he, he buys a bunch of other Rolexes and he's giving these out the next day to everybody on the team. Um, and actually, there was another stop uh, before the Beverly Center. He took me to the big and tall clothing store, um, and and he shelled out seven thousand dollars on a new suit, jeans, shirts, everything. I, I've I've never spent seven thousand dollars <laughs> in, in an apartment store for clothes before or since. But 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 it but but it speaks to the generosity, and, and just kind of the Shaq, Shaq, Shaq's a great person. He's a guy that when he walks into the room. He, he's the guy that's fun, that gets everybody laughing, that gets everybody joking, that just kind of brightens the day for everybody. And he did that for me, and he did that for really everybody on the team.
3: It's fantastic. And, and look, I uh, but also, it seems like he had a soft spot for you. What do you think he saw in you?
4: You know, he, he,
1: he probably saw somebody that, maybe wasn't blessed with some of the natural abilities uh, of other players in the NBA, but, but, but I think he did respect the fact that I, I worked, I worked hard. I worked hard. And I think, I think that somehow resonated with Shaq and uh, you know, I, I think that just, <clears throat> and, and he's also one of those guys that just, he, he's a guy that likes to help the underdog. Yeah. You, you know, you, you look at the charity work he does, you, you look at the Thanksgiving and Christmas time in LA he was the one going into the the, the the so-called less privileged areas that was giving out turkeys, that, that, that was passing out toys. And he didn't do it because he wanted to be on the news. He did it because he cared about other people.
3: Mad Dog, I appreciate you giving us your time. I'm excited for you and your family. I saw the pictures on Instagram of your kids. Beautiful family. Uh, it'll be fun to watch them grow up with you coaching that team. We'll get you back on closer to the season and – and uh, just really appreciate you making this time for us.
1: Hey, John, you, you do an unbelievable job covering, covering the conference, and uh, I'm excited to see you more and interact more.
3: For sure. Mark Madsen, Cal coach, appreciate you, appreciate the time. Fantastic interview. If you, if you didn't catch it all, grab the podcast, share it with your friends and family. Leave it here. Super impressed with Mark Madsen. I love the story with Shaq and the Rolex. I mean, I'd heard kind of variations of it before. Uh, but love the interview. Uh, if uh, you missed it, get the podcast. Uh, we will uh, package it, turn it around. We will blast it to the world. But, Stephen, I have to know, you heard him. We've all kind of rolled our eyes when, you know, you hear Cal basketball and they've struggled and they have the transfer portal. They don't have a practice facility. They didn't travel via charter last year. But it sounds like Madsen did his homework. Um, and it sounds like he's reading me, too, which is okay by me. But, Give me an idea. What did you think?
5: No, I, I he came across awesome. And, and you look at what he did at Utah Valley. Like, even when they were bad, they were 11-19 his first year, John. They still have top 100 defense in the nation. So, like, and they improved last season, number four in the nation. So, he can coach. Like, I think that's the big thing is, yes, he was a foreign player. Yes, he's going to have some status because of that. But the guy can actually coach X's and O's. And so, now he's at Cal where he's going to be able to get a different type of player, different type of athlete, and that's where you win. He's already done a great job in the transfer portal. Like he said, he wants to compete year one. I don't put it past him. Like I don't know yeah. if they will be an NCAA tournament team, John, but there'll be a team that looks for, is looking for the postseason.
3: Well, he's he's coming off a you know the historically bad season. Our Cal basketball is coming off a uh, historically bad season. Three and twenty nine, I believe, was their final record last year. And and I think he'll uh, I think he's going to win there. I I, I think he's going to win. To what extent we will see, John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, coming up. Look, I don't think Mark Madsen's going to the final four in his first season, but we just spoke with Cal's coach. If you heard the interview, really good look into what he wants to do at Cal, what he thinks he can do at Cal. He's brought a staff to the East Bay area where it's it's you know, it's not cheap to ask people to move. And he's talking like a guy who knows what it's gonna take to win at Cal. Seems to have the support of his donors. He said uh, multiple times in that interview that they're building that practice facility. And uh, it was really interesting to hear him talk about the assurances he got from Cal A.D. Jim Knowlton prior to taking the job. They will fly via charter flight, Cal basketball. They will not be negatively recruited on that front.
5: John, it seems to me that is going to be regretting not firing Jared Haas <laughs> and hiring Mark Matz this past offseason. You think so? I think so. But you he,
3: texted me during the interview. You said he's going to win.
5: He's going to win. I, I, I'm i sold on Mark Madsen winning a Cal.
3: I had a couple of friends who live in the Bay Area who are big Cal fans who were listening to that interview. And I just, I'll just, i just read a little excerpt from uh, one of my friends who was listening. He said, you know, look, um, this is a really good interview. Mark is really good. This is from a diehard Cal fan who is totally – disillusioned with what Cal became in the last couple of few years. Uh, our next guest can speak to some of that. John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, San Jose Mercury News. You can read him at Pac12Hotline.com. He is my co-host on the Kanzano and Wilner podcast. Wilner, let's start by talking about Mark Madsen. He's, he seems to have the donor support, the leverage, saying the right things. He's got some proof of performance. He, he talked. He interviewed before the interview. He talked to three prior Cal coaches to get input he talked to players he says they're building that practice facility the plans are drawn up um, you know I, I think you know I think they want to matter again. well if he wants to matter
2: uh, we'll see if the athletic department wants to matter and we certainly will see if the uh, administration wants to matter right I mean if you're Cal basketball coach, you're starting off it's like starting a game and you're down 14 to 1. Yeah. So, we'll see to what extent he can rebuild the roster and and to what extent Pal, Cal makes good on those promises within our lifetimes. Right. I mean, Cal could say sure we're going to we're going to build a basketball facility and that thing they break ground in, in 2087. So, we'll see.
3: Give me an idea of what you would consider a successful first year cuz you know he said what coaches will say he'll say hey we want to we want to win we want to be competitive right away but what what is a success in year 1 for a program that was 3 and 29 yeah uh
2: you know if they could get to well it, i i think it's a couple of, on a couple of fronts one is they got to win more than one or two Pac12 games you know what 4 and 16 5 and 15 overall if they could get to 8 or 10 wins but the big thing to me too is no terrible losses in November and December, and that's been the hallmark of Cal basketball for many years now is just these abominable non-conference losses that set their their uh, net ranking in the two and 300s, and then every time they play a Pac-12 game, they drag down the Pac-12 opponent because uh, win or lose because Cal's net rate, ranking is so bad. So they've got to avoid the terrible losses early in the season.
3: You know what my dad used to do when I when he coached start my Little League teams is, you know, he'd say, all right, everybody take a lap. And then he'd say, don't be last. I think that's Cal's mantra for year one. Don't be last. You know, beat somebody in conference play. And I know Mark Madsen won't like to hear that, but, you know, you, they were non-competitive this last season. And I think being competitive, maybe having a couple players that you go, oh, gosh, that's a great young player. In two years they're going to be lights out. I think that, to me, would be a marker of success. Also, maybe just seeing some, like the family that owns the Levi Strauss company, it, big Cal donors, just seeing them back engaged like they were in the Ben Braun uh, era of Cal basketball would be, I think a win as well.
2: Oh, no question. But then it's, then you get to the commitment issue though, right? Let's say he does get a couple of promising young players. Then you got to keep those guys. And pa- a big part of keeping them is as NIL these days. So, Where's Cal's collective going to be on NIL? What kind of donor support are they going to get on that front? You know, to what extent is the administration going to let him get transfers in for undergraduate, for graduate, you know, over the course of a couple of years? Because that's what he's going to need is multiple recruiting classes to rebuild the roster and then keep those guys. And keeping them is very difficult at Cal.
3: John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News. You tweeted out newsy day today. Mike Bone, the athletic director USC, uh, resigned today. What did you make of that?
2: Well, the LA Times reported uh, it's uh, you know updated its initial report that just had Mike Bone's statement, and, and the update said that there that USC had kind of out hired an outside firm to investigate the culture of the athletic department, and it sounds like. Some of the feedback that that firm got about Bones management was not very flattering, and I would imagine that is what sparked this uh, kind of abrupt uh, resignation, right? I mean, it came out today, and he's resigning today. So, you know, that's not usually a, a good a good reflection on what's going on internally, and, and so the LA Times, I think, has kind of shed some light on it
3: yeah his statement kind of buries the lead right you know i read his initial statement and i thought health issue and then you 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 read the la times and you're like oh no health of the department issue um his legacy well, yeah 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 his legacy um you know he he has been involved in realignment a couple times in his career what's his legacy right now as an admin
2: you know i think that uh this certainly is gonna is gonna help but He's the guy who got Lincoln Riley hired at USC, and he's the guy who got USC and, and UCLA, you know, ushered into the Big Ten in a lot of ways. I know Fox was kind of the puppet master, but it certainly happened on Bones Watch, and uh, I think that those those two things making USC relevant in football, uh, you know, at the at the highest level. Uh, I think will go a long way towards shaping his legacy and also, you know, what he did at Cincinnati too with Luke Fickle uh, helping that, you know, that helped. He got Colorado in the Pac-12, you know, really was responsible for Cincinnati getting in the big 12 and, and USC into the big 10 uh, you know, all those things kind of happened on his watches.
3: Wilner, you know, this, uh, this is uh these uncertain times seem to be, crawling towards a resolution on the Pac-12's front. Um, J.D. Wicker, San Diego State Athletic Director, did an interview, uh, you know, yesterday in which he said that, you know, he's been in regular contact with the Pac-12. He mentioned June 30th, that 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 they're kind of expecting a resolution on that front. Well, you and I have talked on, on the podcast about Ray Anderson's comments, Kirk Schultz's comments, Rob Mullen's comments. Are you getting the sense as well that the goalposts have been moved into – the middle of June, end of June, as a resolution? You know, it seems that way. Uh,
2: The goalposts were moved into March, right, initially. They were set in March, and then they were moved. Uh, But certainly, you know, when the Pac-12 tried to manage expectations back in March, it was targeting, like, what, uh, late spring, early summer, I think is how it was actually phrased, and that would put you, you know, middle or late June. And I certainly think San Diego State would like to, you know, keep its its uh, exit payment to the Mountain West as low as possible. And, and, you know, having it double or whatever it does starting on July 1st is, is suboptimal. So my guess is they're going to do everything they can to get it, get it done by June 30th. Now, what that means exactly you know, I don't know. It's possible that uh, that they'll have something done, and nobody's going to know about it, right? They've been pretty good about keeping things quiet. So we'll see what kind of job they do uh, with the leaks to the media during those three successive uh, endeavors, right? They got to sign, get uh, agree to a media deal, sign the grant of rights, and then make a decision on expansion. I would imagine those things will happen quickly, but I don't think they're going to happen all at once. So what will happen in between each move is, is kind of what I'm interested in.
3: Yeah, I asked Bob Thompson about the grant of rights and media deal, and he told me that that they would not push a media deal forward for a vote unless they knew they had the grant of rights locked up. And so he said that falls on the executive committee. And help me out here. I believe it is uh, Kirk Schultz at Washington State, Anna Maria at Washington, and uh, Stanford's uh, president, who are the... Yeah, are Mark S.A. Uh,
2: Levine at Stanford, yeah. yes.
3: So what my understanding there is those three, they get sort of, hey, here's the deal. Is everybody good with the deal? Yes, okay. Uh, that means we have the grant of rights. He says they so they sort of walk in lockstep on those two parts, but I kind of wonder, you know, would they, would they have a discussion about unequal revenue sharing with postseason money? Do you think that will be part of the Pac-12 conference's plan moving forward that, you know, hey, you, you earn a bigger share if you make the playoff?
2: You know, I don't know if it will be, uh, but it seems like that would be something they should really be thinking long and hard about. Uh, I think it would it would satisfy uh, multiple schools for, you know, football and basketball, but also, you know, it, it can work as an incentive uh, for other schools to, to spend more money. I don't know that it uh, kind of – you eat what you kill in the postseason, to a certain extent, not every dime, right? I mean, if you get twenty-five million dollars for a playoff appearance, I don't know that the that that school necessarily keeps all twenty-five million, but certainly some kind of outsized portion makes makes a lot of sense to me in that regard. And I would have to think that they've been talking that through. It'll probably be a deal where, yeah, we know that we're gonna we're gonna sign that media deal because we know the Grand of Rights is okay. And then we're going to move to to expansion. And I don't know how long it'll take on expansion if they get those first two pieces together. You know, maybe it's the same day, but it also could be a few days and and expansion. There's a lot of legal work on multiple fronts with with expansion. So we'll see if they're able to get that thing settled, you know, within a short period of time after the, the first two hurdles are cleared.
3: John Wilner, San Jose Mercury News, with us, covers the PAC-12 conference. Uh, Some news today on the finances of the conference. Uh, About 11 o'clock this morning, PAC-12 releasing their financial performance for the fiscal year that was 21-22, showing uh, $581 million in revenues, showing some distributions. Um, You took a look at the 990. What jumps out at you when you look at the financial report that the PAC-12 issued?
2: Well, you know, it's certainly record revenue and record distributions to the schools, but at the same time, they're still trailing their peers in the other leagues, and a lot of that's because of the Pac-12 networks, both uh, the lack of revenue at the Pac-12 networks and also the expense involved in the Pac-12 networks. You know, I think I think they've done a good job trimming conference operational expenses. Uh, it was like 12%, 13%. They've trimmed those. Uh, but, you know, their, their basic financial framework is kind of the same that it has been uh a couple other things that were of interest one is that they may have to file an amended uh an amended report to the to the irs because of the the comcast fiasco because they could end up with reduced revenue which would require them to amend their that that piece of the of the tax filings and the other piece is you know larry scott's getting himself a nice little severance package He got 1.5 million for work in the first 6 months of 2021 and i'm assuming that uh he's gonna, we're going to see 1.5 million show up for in severance for him when we get to uh next spring and they release the the 990s for the 23 fiscal year i, I would imagine he got a 3 million dollar severance payment in addition to a hefty uh a hefty compensation for being commissioner for the first 6 months of that year He has done very well by the Pac-12. The presidents have treated him like royalty.
3: It's just too bad he was never negotiating on behalf of the Pac-12. He did well negotiating for himself. You know, like, I knew he had it in him. I just wish that that he had thought of the Pac-12 as the entity that he needed to put first. Uh, Wilner, this season uh, we're going to get five, maybe six teams in the preseason top 25. Do you think five or six? Do you think UCLA gets ranked or... Or is it five and UCLA also gets votes?
2: Well, I think it's something that we're assuming, and I agree with you. But we're both assuming that Oregon State's going to be in there, which is yeah. is pretty uh, remarkable, right? I mean, I don't know the last time Oregon State was in the AP preseason poll. You may, but I certainly don't. And, and to me, it, it, there's not even a question as to whether they should be in there, uh, which tells you a lot about what Jonathan Smith has done. UCLA, I man. Uh, I don't know that they will. I think it'll be real close. They'll be in that, maybe be in that, others receiving the votes. They, they you know, losing the quarterback, losing tailback, their defense was bad. I just don't know enough that enough people around the country, you know, there's 60-some voters in the AP poll. I don't know that enough of them are going to have, have, you know, be comfortable with putting UCLA in there.
3: Wilner, uh, you know, look, before I let you go here, this – um you know this football season. I think I'm looking at Washington. I'm looking at Oregon. I'm looking at USC. I'm I'm looking at Utah. Just let's start. Let's focus on those four. Because uh, apologies to Oregon State. I don't I don't want to put them in this conversation. But of those four, who is most likely in your mind to take a step backwards? You know, as we're assuming they're all going to be good, but who has the most questions, or maybe? is walking the uh, walking a tighter line than the others?
2: Oh, man, good question. I, I think in in some ways it's Utah only because you got to have so much go right to say three Pete and uh, that that's a that's a tough order. but if I were gonna pick out one out of those four to take a significant step back in performance, you know Oregon it would probably be Oregon. Because I'm just not sure about their their defense, right? I they kinda uh, lost it. They, they kinda fell apart down the stretch last year. Uh, and I the offensive line's gotta be rebuilt. I know they've recruited well, but I'm just uh, I'm not I'm not sold on Oregon. Of those three of those four, that would be the team I'd pick to to really step back. Uh, even though, even though Utah has has walked that fine line and certainly needed a lot of help to get into the Pac-12 championship game last year, I would probably pick Oregon, and I may end up regretting that pick, too. Who knows? They'll end up finishing 11-1. and one.
3: Yeah, I look at Oregon, and I, I think, you know, I like the way their schedule lines up. I like the fact that they're not going to play their tougher games until about week seven when they meet Washington, but that last month is going to be brutal for them. If they can be healthy... And they can get the defense figured out. I, I, I think Oregon might make the title game. But, but um, I look at Washington. I think, you know, can Michael Penix Jr. stay as healthy as he did last year? That's a question mark for Kalen DeBoer. And certainly with USC, I think, you know, we learned it in the title game. I think they're going to be better on the defensive line. Maybe they'll be better and run, more physical on the offensive line. But if they don't keep Caleb Williams healthy, they're, not, they're obviously not the same team. And so I look at it's health for me. And, and the fact that all these te- these good teams don't play each other until week seven, week eight, week nine, whoever's healthy at the end of the year, I think, wins this thing and or gets to Vegas. Uh, Wilner, I appreciate you, man. Uh, keep up the good work. Keep up the fight. We will uh, continue to do the Konzano and Wilner podcast. For those who uh, who haven't found it yet, make sure you subscribe to it. Wilner, thank you, man. Thanks, my friend. All right. There he is, John Wilner. Um, all right, most likely to take a step backwards. Think about that. Um, Oregon State, all right, I, I, I think you could build a case for anybody because we just don't know at this point. I'll include Oregon State then, all right? So I will. Just to be fair, I'll include all five of the ranked teams. Most likely to maybe not be ranked at the end of the year, all right? Let's 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 just build a case for everybody. Um, USC's case begins and ends with Caleb Williams. He gets hurt, um, has a hamstring issue like he did in the title game, has any kind of... Injury, they're not the same. USC's not the same team. And guess what? They play all their hard games week seven and beyond, or the more difficult appearing games come at week six with Notre Dame, and then all the conference games after that are tough for them. Utah, Oregon, Washington. uh, It's going to be brutal down the stretch. So if Caleb Williams isn't right, they are going to struggle late in the season. Um, Same for Oregon. It's Bo Nix. Like, we saw it last year. Like, they pretty much put Bo Nix on a stool – in the late part of the season against Utah and and certainly in the Civil War game against Oregon State, and they just said, okay, you know, we're real limited in what we can do here. You can't end up there, again, if you're Oregon. And beyond that, your defense has to be better. We know that. So those are the questions for Oregon. Washington, it's health of Michael Penix Jr., who has historically struggled to stay healthy last year. Knock on wood, Penix Jr. stayed healthy. Washington didn't have a great run game, and it didn't matter. I think they need to be better in the run game because I think you're going to see teams. Mike Pilati told me this in a conversation just a few weeks ago. He was, he was really baffled at Oregon's two of the last three games in Oregon's regular season. He said couldn't stop Washington's pass game, and that's all they were doing was passing. Couldn't stop Oregon State's run game, and all they were doing was running. And he looked at those you know, those two games and thought no adjustment at all. Well, guess what? Pac-12 defenses will adjust to what Michael Penix Jr. is doing, and that's why Washington's got to run the ball better. They have to have a potent run game, or at least a run game that keeps you honest. They didn't have that last year. So I think that's the question for Washington. Utah, uh, Cam Rising is the question mark. He had a knee surgery, season-ending injury last year. Does he come back, and does he come back in a way that is meaningful? That is a huge question for Utah. Utah. And so, you know, everybody's got a question mark. And Oregon State's question mark, I think, begins with the quarterback position and then uh, the questions on defense. They lost t- multiple team captains, Jack Coletto at linebacker, Jaden Grant in the secondary. How do they replace that leadership? And will there be questions in fall camp? Is it Aiden Childs? Is it DJ Uyangalele? Like, who is going to uh, – start at quarterback to start the year like oregon state's got to figure that out and it's got to replace the leadership so still questions for the five teams that we all expect to be ranked all right i want you to leave it here coming up uh, later in the program ben golliver is going to join us he's in the air today he will be landing in los angeles he's traveling denver to los angeles he will be there for game three of the western conference finals ben golliver washington post will be with us in the five o'clock hour leave it here Excited to talk to Ben Goliver later in the program. I think he's one of the best in the, uh, in the NBA world talking about the playoffs. He'll join us from Los Angeles, uh, site of Game 3 of that series. Nuggets up two games to none. Jamal Murray was on fire. It reminded me of NBA Jams. He's on fire. Uh, as uh, he was. Uh, his fourth quarter last night was fantastic. Steven, I thought the Lakers had that one.
5: I did too. Um, I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they did not pull it off. I oh. did. I made the bet. Uh, <laughs> oh, you did now? Oh yeah, no. I did right away.
3: So now you are. Uh... <laughs> so now you are looking at uh, betting the Lakers.
5: Yeah. No. To win I, the series. Yeah. Before the game, they were plus two forty to win the series. I bet them at plus three fifty to win the series after the after the loss. I, you know, the Nuggets may just be better, and I might be wrong about this, but. I look at this Lakers team and they have a lot more depth. They have a lot more talent on this team. You look at Denver, they have one guy off the bench, Bruce Brown, that they play. They play six guys. And I think that's going to come back and hurt Denver later on in the series. So I think L.A. gets the two games at home. And then when you go back to Denver, I know it's tough to play there. But the Lakers have been in both games and I don't think that they've played well in either of them. LeBron hasn't hit a three in the fourth quarter in either game. Anthony Davis didn't even score 20 points last night. I think the Lakers are more talented than Denver, and Denver is less deep. So I have a lot of faith in the Lakers that they can uh, pull off the uh, you know, the comeback from down 2 and win the series.
3: We will see what happens there. All right, we're going to play some punch-it audio here. We have great sound today. Uh, busy day, a lot of news. Uh, let's do it.
0: We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters.
3: Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the
6: American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day.
0: You're going to hear little snippets of sound.
6: Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling.
3: Well, let's start with Mark Madsen, who is our guest in Hour 1, New Cal basketball coach. He is taking over a program that went 3-29 and under Mark Fox last year. Fox was dismissed. Cal doesn't have a practice facility. They didn't take team charters on uh, road trips. Mark Madsen, though, sounded like a guy who's ready to win.
1: Punch it. We want to compete right away. We, we will compete right away. We we will be... We, we, are the, we are going to be a team that other teams do not want to try to prepare for. We're going to throw different defenses out there. We're going to play fast. We're going to have a lot of different offensive schemes with great spacing, and every action is going to have a counter. And so it's going to be hard to steal our calls. It's going to be hard to prepare against us because we are coming to this conference guns a-blazing.
3: Guns a-blazing. Wants to build a practice facility. He said, we will get it done. We will get it done. He said it twice. He's like speaking it into, into truth. Uh, look, I like Madsen. I liked him as a player at Stanford. Uh, he told a great story about Shaq. Obviously, the generosity of Shaq that uh, has been documented in other stories, but uh, that interview is well worth your time. You get a chance to listen to the podcast. But Cal's got an uphill climb, and and we all know that it. You know, you, coaches coaches can coach, coaches can recruit. He's got a good staff, but ultimately, he does need he needs help. He needs booster help. And you talk about the uh, former coaches like Ben Braun, who who I think is. Really disappointed with where Cal's program has ended up. Ben Braun, I think, um, and Mark Montgomery, uh, excuse me, Mike Montgomery, really, really uh, strong advocates for what Mark Madsen wants to do. But I don't like the athletic director, Jim Knowlton, at Cal. I don't think he's a great fit. I don't think the university president uh, and chancellor understand sports and the value of sports. So, you know, I think Justin Wilcox is up against those things as well on the football side. Be interesting to see if Mark Madsen can overcome some of it. Mike Bone, USC's athletic director. He resigned today. Looks like it's a little bit of a hostile work environment situation at USC. But here he is at Lincoln Riley's introductory news conference in uh, November of last year. When we began this process, our goal was to find the right leader for USC
1: and our football players. It was never Our goal to change the landscape of college football with one of the biggest moves in the history of the game. But we did exactly that.
3: Cue the band. Cue the song girls. And, uh, you know, look, also, let's uh, bring in uh, the workplace investigation team at USC. L.A. Times story outlining a, uh, a work environment that had negative culture and Hostility being part of it, doesn't shock me. Um, He he, he did strike me as a bit of a blowhard. And, you know, look, I know a lot of people in the Pac-12 footprint are not happy with Mike Bone because they do see him as partly the architect of USC's departure from the Pac-12. But it sounds to me like it wasn't all that fun to work alongside him if you were in the USC athletic department. This is just starting for Bone. It's a great job. Somebody else out there will benefit from it but USC heading to the Big Ten conference without their athletic director the guy who helped engineer that deal Jim Brown passed away uh, some sad news coming out of the NFL world today uh, his widow uh, telling uh, telling the world in a statement that uh, he has passed away Monique Brown made the made the uh, statement last night uh, Jim Brown hear it here punch it well you get at the same time each time so
1: that the enemy don't know when you're hurt or when you have to get up slow. And it gives you an advantage. That's simple. You know, if one time you get up real slow and look like you're hurt, they're gonna come at you the next player and try to kill you. But if you get up slow every time, you conserve energy, and you camouflage everything.
3: Power runner with sprinter's speed. Uh, What a blend of talent with Jim Brown. Uh, 87 years old, uh, this was a guy inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, 1971, uh, and a guy who retired in the at the height of his career. Uh, you know, he was a reigning NFL MVP when he retired from football at the age of 30. He was fi- filming a movie. He became a movie star. He was in more than 50 film and television projects. He became a civil rights activist. Could have played longer. Could have played many more years, but. Um, Jim Brown, who led the NFL in rushing eight times in nine seasons, nine Pro Bowls, NFL champion. Final year, he rushed for a league high 1,544 yards. Jim Brown dead at the age of 87. Uh, Greg Biggins, 24 7 sports, giving out grades when it comes to spring recruiting. What grade did he give the Oregon Ducks? Here's Biggins.
0: Punch it. Give him an A-plus, right? I don't know what I put down. If it was an A, I'm going to make it an A-plus just because I'm feeling generous right now. (laughs) Andrew Van Buren, a quarterback that I like a lot, could be their quarterback of the Futures community this weekend. The crystal ball is kind of heavily leaning toward those Ducks, Blair and Emily. So, again, so much energy from that staff. Dan Lanning all the way down would be Tosh Lupoy, Demetrius Martin. And I know I think Oregon, you got to mention them as a— Uh, One of those few schools, again, you say the Ohio States, the Alabamas of the world, where if you get an offer from Oregon, whether you're in Southern California, you're in New York, you're in Texas, then that Oregon offer resonates now, and it creates so much buzz, and they are an absolute player for anybody in the country. I like what they're doing so far, and I love who they kind of currently lead for. Don't want to give away uh, the answers to the test, but I think Oregon right now gets an A-plus from me.
3: Greg Biggins handing out not just an A, but an A-plus. Uh, I follow Tosh Lapoy, Oregon's D coordinator, on social media. He just tweets out pictures of all the interstate overpass signs that, you know, mark the cities that he's in, St. Louis and uh, and whatnot. Uh, Interesting to see. I think he's in Vegas this week. But interesting to see Oregon out recruiting, especially in the spring. Meanwhile, he gave Oregon State a less favorable grade.
0: Here's Greg Biggins' punch. Oregon it. State, uh, you mentioned, you know, Aiden Childs. They're they're doing pretty well I think Oregon State with another quarterback at a, at a Wanda, DeMarcus Davis who we saw a few times and and again for me it's kind of an easy comp. Two Childs, they're both about 6'4" 6'5", they're both kind of late bloomers, both have big time arms, both are young for their grade, both are athletic. Uh, and I like that a lot. Kamar Mithudi, one of our top 100 players or 150, top linebacker. He's going to visit Oregon State. Oregon State has a lot of players lined up for official visits in June. So uh, whatever the grade is right now, I think, you know, you guys gave him a C plus. I was I was saying C. You guys went C+. Plus. You know, it, shoot, it could be a B- minus maybe, right? They can close on some of these guys in June. We, we shall see about that.
3: Look, uh, Oregon State, though, we all know they do it a little different in Corvallis. It's about retention. It's about growth. Jonathan Smith lost fewer players in the transfer portal to other schools than anybody else in the Pac-12 culture is what it's about at Oregon State. Uh, You know, there's two ways. I always say this. There's two ways to get to the top of the tree, okay? You can catapult yourself to the top of the tree, Oregon, or you can plant a seed, you can water it, and you can sit on the ground and wait. That's Oregon State. Either way, you're at the top of the tree. And I think it's be fun to see these two teams hopefully meet in a civil war football game late next season that has some big time implications.
5: Do you do you agree with the point that he made about Oregon saying he's they're on the same level as an Ohio State Alabama when they offer a kid it resonates that much that that seems like really high praise to me but I might be wrong maybe that's the way it is looked across. Uh, the country right now.
3: I'm not as tuned in as these recruiting geeks are. And I mean that with all love and respect for Greg Biggins. Uh, but he's a geek. I mean, he geeks out on this stuff. It's what he follows. And and look, he's Southern California based where Oregon has has done really well historically. I think the, the challenge and where I would disagree with him is that Ohio State and others are getting defensive tackles that are five-star guys. Oregon got Jordan Birch out of the transfer portal, he's a different kind of body. I, I stood next to him on the sideline after the spring game. I just kind of wanted to size him up. And, you know, because we'd heard so much about him, I kind of just walked over and just kind of looked at him. And he did. He, he reminded me of uh, Eric Armstead or uh, DeForest Buckner. He has that kind of size to him. So, but Oregon gets one of those guys. Ohio State gets five of those guys. There's a big difference there. So I, I think I need, I need a bigger sample size, but for now, I'll take Biggins at his word that the offer from Oregon means as much as the offer from Ohio State. And, and I have friends. Look, I have a friend who lives in SEC country. He's a physician. He lives near Ole Miss in some, you know, small town where they sit on the porch with a bow tie on and they drink uh, sweet tea. He uh, he said to me that the kids down there, as they play Madden and other video games, they all want to be Oregon. It's still cool to be Oregon. And give, I'll give the Ducks credit for that. LeBron James. He looked a little old last night as the Nuggets uh, were rolling to a win in Game 2 of the Western Conference Finals. Here's how it sounded. Oh, block by Davis. Picked up by Schroeder. Saves it to Hachimura. James ahead of the pack. Goes up. Oh, he passed control, And the crowd delights in that. I can't ever remember seeing that from him. LeBron missing a uh loses the ball on the fast break dunk attempt he also had a flop steven you see him flop and uh, yeah. nikola Jokic uh a little bit disgusted with him does he lose cred among nba players by flopping like that um
5: maybe a little bit but i think i think a lot of players they try to sell calls so i don't i don't necessarily blame lebron like he got to try to uh you know sell the call and he got it right like he got the foul called for him so i don't I don't hate it. Like, flopping happens in all sports. It happens in football, which is the toughest sport. It happens in soccer. Like, it happens everywhere. So I I really don't have a problem with it, and I don't think it hurts his reputation too much. He's just kind of known as a flopper. That's just what he does. But that dunk, John, that uh, you played right there, you tried to go fancy on it, and uh, yep. you, know, I, you can't do that in the playoffs. Why, why are you giving up two points? That's just a bad move. Like, LeBron, one of the smarter players I've ever seen play, really dumb play right there.
3: It, it struck me late in the game after Anthony Davis hits a three. I think that pulled them to within two or three. I I thought to myself later in the in the uh, game. I thought, gosh, if if they could get that two points back on the LeBron miss, they would be right there. And and unfortunately, they weren't. And Denver put the game away. Uh, the Trail Blazers hold the number three pick. A lot of questions for the Blazers. A lot of speculation about you know the Blazers could get a uh, premier wing player for Anthony Simons and the three-pick. I, I need to see it to believe it. I also think there's other questions for this franchise. But Zach Lowe, who covers the NBA, talking about what the Blazers might do. Punch it. And
6: there's a sense now that like maybe the West will be kind of quote-unquote open in the next couple of years. And so you ask me what trade makes them a finals contender. And on the one hand, well, hey, the West is open. If we could package... Number three in Anthony Simons, could we get Mikhail Bridges? I don't I don't think that gets you there. Could we get OG and I'm not, not sure that gets you there. Does that make you a finals contender? I, in the West, maybe. On the other hand, maybe the West is so wide open, you try to thread the needle like you just described and collect all these young guys. Maybe one or two of them pop at the same time. Maybe Nurkic gets healthy and has a great season. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, we're pretty darn good. But if I'm Damian Lillard and I'm 32... And I'm looking around, I got Simons and Sharp and Brandon Miller, Scoot Scoot Henderson, and, like, all these guys are exciting. Are they that exciting to me? I I don't know. Maybe they are.
3: Yeah, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I, I just think that I don't. See the West is wide open, as Zach Lowe is talking about. You know, do you see that? I because I look at Denver and I think Denver's going to be there for a while. Yeah, and he
5: yeah. In the clip, it was a little longer later on. He talked about that how Denver's going to be there. Phoenix is still going to be there with Durant and Booker. Lakers aren't going to go anywhere. They're going to try to rebuild. Same with the Clippers. So no, I'm, I'm with you, John. I don't think the West is as open as we think it is. I think it's very. There may not be like the top teams, but it's from one yeah. to twelve. Like it is deep. Like it yeah. is really tough to get up in there. And the interesting part is, I've been talking to numerous people today, trying to figure out what is real, what is not, with that number three pick in Amphrey Simons. You ask one person, they can get a superstar player, Mikel Bridges, Jalen Brown. You talk to another person, they can't get OG and Anobi. Like, I don't think anybody knows anything right now. But it, you know, we gotta we gotta project what was gonna happen. To me, it seems like the Blazers are gonna be put in a spot where they're either gonna have to sell that or trade that pick for less value. Or they're going to force Dame's hand and just draft a player. Like, I don't think they're going to yeah. get top-end talent like a lot of the Blazer fans. And I think even the Blazer front office thinks right now.
3: And I think the where I cringe is if they settle. And instead of drafting the player, they settle for not top-end talent with the pick. Because then you're mortgaging your future. You're not taking the best young player in the draft. And you are mortgaging your future at a discount. And that's what you can't do. And that's why I think, like, the more plausible thing, again... Blazer fans who love Damian Lillard don't want to hear it, but the the best way out of this for the Blazers might be to trade Damian Lillard. Let and, me ask you this, John. Yeah.
5: Joe Cronin signed a, you know, a long-term deal. Mike Schmitz, the assistant GM, he's there for a long time. Is it out of the question to say they're going to force Dame's hand and just draft somebody at no. three, and if Dame says Not I want to question. be traded, trade me.
3: Not out of the question, but you lose, your, you lose value with Lillard. But I keep looking at Denver, Sacramento, Phoenix, even the Warriors even the Clippers, even the Lakers, and I'm going, okay, how, how, how far away from that are the Blazers? Like it's not just add one player and now you can compete in the West. That's not it. You need multiple players. You need depth. You need to figure out what, um, you know, what is happening with Yusuf Nurkic or at the center position in general. You need a better center. You need an elite small forward. You need depth. And, can you do that with the three-pick in Anthony Simons? No, you can't do that. That's why I think they're too far away. And I think the upside, even if they make the deal that is a pretty good deal for the pick and Simons, I still think they're like, are they 6, 7, or 8 in the West? And to me, that's not enough to give up that future. And that future is the third pick. And so I, I would rather see them pivot now have some growing pains in the next couple years and emerge like, you know, Sacramento has emerged and emerge as, you know, some of these other teams. You know, you're not Phoenix. You're not the Lakers. You're not going to build that way. You have to think of Sacramento. You have to think of maybe what Memphis was moving towards before all this John Morant stuff. But uh, tough position for the Blazers, and I think uh, we're going to find out if they are betting on Lillard or betting on their future. Leave it here. Steven, how you doing, man? What are you doing this weekend? Anything exciting?
5: Um, Yeah, you know, uh, I mentioned this the other week. Uh, my kids are starting to get into collecting cards. So uh, there's like nice. this, um, at this, as a, there's a sports card store right kind of by my house. You know, it's you know, okay. five, seven minutes away. And they have some event going on this weekend on Saturday. Okay. Uh, so we're going to go there for a little bit. And then we got a uh, graduation party I'm going to. Nice. Uh, I've known this kid, I mean, since he was probably like, you know 6 or 7 when i first started dating my wife like she she babysat him uh he just finished college so uh we're going to his graduation party so that's going to be a good time
3: yeah that's good i like that your kids are uh, into sports cards uh my 8 year old it was last year she was not into any of this stuff and i i collected cards as a kid so uh, you know i've got old cards that now i've had some graded and some of them I found out that I wasted my time and money collecting all those years ago. But, I, you know, some of them are worth something. And I tried to get the 8-year-old into it, and I used the WNBA to get her into it. Because she started off kind of into Pokemon and then Garbage Pail Kids. And I was like, okay, like, I'll go along with this to some extent. Like, I know nothing about them. But I said, you know, how about WNBA, like women's basketball? So she was into, like... Sabrina Ionescu and looking for a Sabrina rookie card, you know, was a couple of, you know, seasons ago or whatever series ago. And um, she ended up, we ended up uh, buying some packs and she pulled a Sabrina card out of there. And she was really excited about that. And then we uh, sent it off to be graded, which she was just like the anticipation. When I was a kid. I would send away for things, like using the, you know, the cereal box or whatever. You know, you send away for something, like the secret decoder ring is the great example, whatever. But I don't know if that was necessarily what I sent away from, whatever crap it was that was coming back from Battle Creek, Michigan or whatnot, or if I was buying sea monkeys from the back of a mad magazine or whatever it was. Um, you sent away for things, and then you'd have this period of time where you had to wait. You'd almost forget about it right about the time that it would show up, okay? so. There was this delayed gratification thing. Like, kids today, I don't think they have it. Like, it's now. I want it now. And uh, so she had to wait for this to come back from one of the card grading agencies. And it just came back the other day, the Suprina card. And it and it was, uh, it, they for people who don't know grading, they grade them from 1 to 10. And if you get, like, a 10 gem mint uh, from one of the grading agencies, like, there's a premium on it. it it's condition is everything. And so um, she didn't get a 10, but she got a 9. She was delighted with the 9. Like, just her face lit up. She said, Dad, mint condition. And I was like, you know, for that card, it's probably, that's not going to get you, like, that's not a windfall. But I, w- I was happy for her because I could tell that she was excited about it, which means... The next time we're at one of those shops, she'll buy a pack of something. there's good.
5: I mean, is there any better feeling than buying a pack of cards and opening it and not knowing what's inside? Like you know, you're not going to get anything good probably, but like just the 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 fact that you have no idea what's in there, it could be anything. I, I just love it, and my my oldest son especially, he's just so into. It. He's eight years old. Like he's just loving basketball right now. He is so into it. So I'm excited to see what this event. It's like an event, you know. There's supposed to be some uh, some type of maybe raffle or prizes or food. Some i I have no idea what to expect, but I'm uh, going in. Uh, Open mind, you're gonna have some
3: fun. Yeah, that's good. Let me know where you're going, man. It sounds exciting, and and as uh, you know, I am uh, I am home alone, like Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you the, I'll give you, a call if the you kids. want to hang out with us? <laughs> I've got the kids, and uh, and uh, you know they are uh, they're being patient right now. They're uh, patiently waiting as I'm doing the radio show. But they're going like each. It's it's just an eye opener. Like you and I talked about this yesterday. Like. I have much respect for parents who are juggling work and taking care of kids, and a lot of families have two parents who are we're both working, and that's a real challenge. And you know, Anna is our tentpole in our family; like she does it all. She's the MVP. I'm along for the ride, and she has been out of the picture here because you know her dad. You know, her dad lost his wife. He's in Taiwan and his head spinning a little bit and i think you know she was really worried about him and more specifically just kind of worried there's just there's just a different approach there in in that country to you know when someone passes away there's some you know there was there was just some concern over his well-being and whether there would be anybody there to look after him because his wife was sort of his caretaker and you know, he's getting older, and so Anna went, and she told me, she said she was really concerned about him, and she just texted me because it's morning time there and said, you know, he's uh, he's on board with coming back to the state of Oregon. He's very social, but we'll see, like, you know, what, what he's going to do here in Oregon. And, and it looks like he's going to be living with us a little bit, but in the meantime, i got to keep myself and these kids uh, healthy and alive. Until she gets back. That's my job over the weekend. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. Everybody keep breathing. All right. uh, Coming up, we got the 5 at 5. Man, this show is flying along. There are just some days where I'm like, we have so much to talk about. We need to get to all of this. We have too many things that we need to deal with. And then I look up and I'm like, man, we're running out of time here. Uh, coming up later this hour, we'll get a visit from Ben Goliver, Washington Post NBA writer. He's fantastic on the NBA. Might be the best. Might be the best around. He is. Uh, he knows the league. He's well sourced. He's connected. Thinks for himself. Ben Goliver will be joining us. Author and uh, Washington Post NBA writer. Friend of this show. He'll be with us at five twenty four. In the meantime, we're going to do the 5 at 5. Steven is going to be the star of the show. Steven, are you all stretched out?
5: Uh, yeah, stretched, ready to go. I did some jumping jacks during the break. Uh, we're ready to go.
3: Hey, how much warm-up time did you need as a basketball player? Like, yeah. what's the right amount of time to warm up?
5: You know, I uh, I probably should have taken more. Uh, we just had my old uh, assistant, you know, strength and conditioning coach, Henry Rara, on the other day. He'd yeah. probably be sad at me. Um, I wasn't a big stretcher. And I probably should have been more. Um, you know, I, I really can just get out there and ball. I'm just a pure baller. so.
3: Yeah, I think um, it always confused me when I watch NBA players work out before the game because some of them really work out. And I'm like, aren't they going to be tired for the game? And then you realize they're just at such a high fitness level that it is about kind of getting it all going in their process. Like I watched Tim Duncan warm up one time. He takes the exact same shot from the exact same por- part of the court, you know, because I was covering an NBA Finals, I think it was the Pistons Spurs Finals years ago, and I, and I would watch, I would just watch Duncan, Steph Curry probably does this too now, but Duncan would just, he'd sit in the same spot, take the same shot, same place, it's just kind of fun and to it, watch him warm up. And
5: it's all game speed too, like that's the thing, that's why those guys, you know, you talk about Tim Duncan, that's why he's one of the best ever, like, you know, yeah. he he does it the right way, so... Yeah, I mean, it should take you a little bit to warm up, but uh, you know what? Five and five, I'm definitely
2: warmed up for sure.
3: Let's do the five at five. We'll take some phone calls. If you want to weigh in on this great Friday, 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Got a couple people holding with uh, thoughts and questions. Ben Goliver coming up 524. Be here for it. Let's go.
0: The five at five.
3: The number one story as Stephen sees it.
5: Uh, Hall of Famer Jim Brown, one of the greatest college football NFL players of all time. He's passed away at the age of 87 today. His wife, Monique, announced the death on Instagram post uh, Friday afternoon. Said Brown passed away peacefully on Thursday night in their home in Los Angeles. In 2020, Brown was selected to the NFL 100 all-time team and was also ranked as the number one all-time player on the college football 150 list. For his career, ran for at least 100 yards in 58 of his 118 regular season games. Never missed a game. Jim Brown, rest in peace.
3: Wow. I mean, lacrosse player, activist, actor, uh, certainly a fantastic football player, 87 years old, power runner who could flat run. Number two story, as Stephen sees it.
5: USC Athletic Director Mike Bone, he's resigned from his position today. He and the school announced uh, Bone told ESPN's Pete Famble that it was an amical split between uh, himself and the university. Now, Bone did do some positive things, though, for USC, hired Lincoln Riley, and uh, also was one of the people orchestrating the USC move from Pac-12 to the Big Ten alongside UCLA.
3: Yeah, really uh, interesting report coming out of USC. Apparently, they hired an outside law firm to review the culture in the athletic department as they were uh, transitioning to the Big Ten Conference here. And apparently, there were four cor- current and former USC employees who told the LA Times that sta- that it was multiple staffers who had issues with what was going on with Bone. It'll be interesting to see where they, where they end up. Who ends up with the job? Like that's got to be
5: a high priority yeah. job, right? Like a
3: lot yes. of people are going to want that. It's going to be a, that's a big time job, and uh, he blew it. I mean, he blew it at a time when uh, USC uh, USC needed it. But the firm that they hired—it's interesting—has a background with high profile investigations that that delve into the handling of sex sexual harassment and misconduct. They did the Baylor review, the Virginia review, and another one at Colorado. So I, I won't be surprised if that is sort of the tenure, uh, the tenor of uh, USC's investigation. Uh, where are we at? Number two? We well, are at uh, number three. Number John. three. Three. Sorry, man. Three. Oh, it's
5: all good. Uh, yeah, the NFL, go. they are expected to. This is to
3: what a- I do. I, I know. I've, I've learned. <laughs> I've heard.
5: Uh, I feel like Anna right now. The yes. NFL is expected to award uh, the 2026 Super Bowl to Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, California. Uh, Levi's Stadium, will also serve as a host site for the 2026 world cup later that summer so big uh big 2026 for santa claire their levi's stadium world cup super bowl uh that stadium will be one of 11 nfl venues in the united states that will hold matches for the world cup which will be hosted jointly by canada and mexico
3: it's really interesting because i don't think it's that stadium is that nice right they hosted Super Bowl fifty. Ten years later, they're getting Super Bowl sixty. And it's, I've never it's been down little, there, but yeah. I've heard that it's really jam packed down there, right? Like that area. Yeah, it is. It, it used to be. Uh, I used to. I, I know that area well. Great America Parkway it used to be where Marriott's Great America was, the theme park. I think it's still there, but it it was. It's like a business. It's like a business park, and they built a stadium there, and so it kind of has. You know, we all know what business parks are like. Like, you know, they have these winding roads that kind of go in and out. Like, the roads don't necessarily all run north, south. It's off the freeway. It's it's not the worst exit and then get back on the freeway stadium situation that I've seen. But it's a little clunky. And then the field itself, uh, it, you know, I don't think it's that special. I don't think the field itself is that special. And, and people have talked about the stadium and the turf there being problematic, it to me, I think it was a misfire. I think the whole thing could have been really nice, but I think it was a misfire. It's not SoFi Stadium. It's not Allegiant Stadium in Vegas. And for the second time in, in a decade, it's going to host the Super Bowl?
5: It just doesn't seem like it's a big-time event. I mean, when it goes down to Vegas, the Super Bowl in Vegas, like, that's an yeah. event. Like, that'll be fun. It just doesn't seem – I mean, the Pac-12 moved away from that place because
3: it wasn't yeah. very good. And the, and the Bay Area has a hard time anyway with events like that because – it's it it doesn't really know what to do. It's not a convention destination city. It's not, you know, near the, you know, people think of it as the San Francisco Bay area, but you're in Santa Clara, you're still, you know, a 35-minute drive to get over to Santa Cruz or to the North Bay beaches or whatever. I you know, it look, I, I grew up there. I you know, my parents' house is probably 25 minutes from the stadium, okay? And I'm I'm saying like I can tell you right now if I told my parents hey I got you tickets to the Super Bowl all you need to do is pay for parking I'd get some pushback you know I would and part of that is my parents yeah my dad would be like I could watch it on TV what do I need to be there but I'm just saying it doesn't it's not like the crown jewel of the Bay Area and Bay Area sports fans are uh, they're different Stanford Cal see the attendance uh all right we're number 4 here we go
5: number 4 Tom Brady Back in the news, he is retired, but he's not done mentoring quarterbacks. Him and Travis Scott, musician, rapper, I believe, uh, they were at the home of Michael Rubin, who is the CEO of Fanatics. The trio were giving advice uh, on building, uh, on business, brand building to some rookie quarterbacks: Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Anthony Richardson, Will Levis. They were all there. Brady's advice to the quarterbacks: "Quote, I just outlasted everybody." There's another me back there, so how do I keep my edge on everybody? I had to keep working. I didn't go, hey, I'm good. I won three Super Bowls, end quote.
3: There's another story about Tom Brady that's circulating. Have you seen it? I haven't, no. Kim Kardashian. Uh, He's dating Kim Kardashian? The the E! News and People Magazine are talking to publicists. They're saying that they're friends and business partners, and, and they have some people in common, but they're not dating. Uh, And a rep for Tom Brady told People Magazine, no romance there. But that would be the most Kim Kardashian thing ever to pivot to Brady. That's
5: a huge upgrade by Kim Kardashian, though, isn't it? Yeah, I think too much.
3: I mean, Uh, no offense to
5: Kim K, but I feel like, you know, Tom Brady could do better.
3: You think Tom Brady could do better? Last month it was Reese Reese Witherspoon. That was the rumor. Yeah, see, that's way better. Well, they're... um, and then meanwhile, you know, there's all the speculation about Giselle running around with the jiu-jitsu instructor, Joaquin Valente, uh, after their Costa Rica trip. But we'll see. Uh, I think, yeah, I think you have to look at who, who would be the who would benefit more from a Kardashian-Brady relationship. Kardashian, 100%. And Tom Brady, I got news for you, man. Look at Kanye. Didn't end well for him. Look at Chris Humphries. Bad. Pete Davidson, Bad. Uh, look at uh, look at uh, Bruce Jenner. Come on, this it doesn't end well for men in that circle. Just
5: say it. It'd be the ultimate test of Tom Brady, though.
3: Steer clear. He's already Tom the, Brady. He's
5: already the goat quarterback. I don't know if he can conquer it and he can get out uh, of it. And be it'd be normal.
3: It's yeah. It, it's too big a risk. I'm, I'm telling him, hey man, even Achilles had a had a vulnerability. He's don't just competitive go there. He's competitive, John. Don't he, go in there, Tommy. He's got the fire. Don't go in there. Zero relationship. Do not do it. Too much downside. All right, finally, what do you got? All right. Yeah, number five. This one uh, didn't make me
5: mad, just made me confused. Clearview Regional and Eastern High School, they battled in a junior or a JV lacrosse matchup in New Jersey. Sounds normal enough. Yes. There's no winner, though, after three overtimes. And so the teams got together. They said because it's a school night, they couldn't play any longer. So the teams met <laughs> in the middle of the field, chose one player each, played a game of rock, paper, scissor to determine the winner. winner Clearview ended up winning the rock, paper, scissors game and won the lacrosse game. John, I don't know how I
3: feel about this. As a competitor, I would hate yeah. it. I Just play. Like, what are they worried about? Because of school night? It's a school night? Get out of here. Said who? Somebody's, Said the students. That's, that's, some, no, somebody's I, Karen mom. Was yelling from the stands, going, we have to get up early tomorrow. People don't know. We have to work. I got a math test I got to study for. Start the game a little earlier. Three overtimes? Three overtimes.
5: And, you know, the hockey game went to four overtimes. They should have just done rock, paper, scissor for a playoff hockey game. That's what they should
3: have done. I don't know. Western Michigan, though, had the better uh, rock, paper, scissor game. Do you,
5: do you think that if you were in a game and then it was decided by rock, paper, scissors, are you the one that's volunteering to go play rock, paper, scissors? No. You don't have confidence don't in your rock, rock paper scissors game.
3: Well, it's, you're not. That's not what you're training for all year long. That has nothing to do with lacrosse. You might as well just say who has the longest fingernails. You okay. know, it's it's so arbitrary. They Good were fun, getting a, they were getting
5: a lot of praise, a lot of praise on social media because of it, saying no. sportsmanship and things like that. I just no. I hate it. Like I just just play the game, have fun. That's
3: what you're supposed to be there for.
5: Participation
3: awards for everybody. Maybe no. because it's
5: a JV game, not a varsity game. I guess I don't know. I just.
3: I didn't like it. I didn't like it either. Play play until someone wins. That's the five at five. Well done, Stephen. Let's go to the phone lines. Uh, Michael is in Eugene listening on the great powerhouse station, Fox Sports, Eugene. Michael, what's on your mind?
2: John, it's been too long, and uh, best to you and your family with the passing of Anna's. um
4: relative that's yeah yeah, yeah thank you yeah we're thinking about you guys
3: hey you guys are doing it right the best in the business
4: i had a thought so the other day i was telling judah about this while i was waiting you had said san diego state has to option by june 30th or the fee goes from 16 million to 32 why would they not just option it's not like the Mountain West is yeah. not going to take
2: them back if it doesn't happen mm. this year, right? I mean, point. they have all the leverage. It's like a real estate deal. Why don't they just do that?
3: Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you're onto something there. Uh, and I think, Gloria, I, I reached out to Gloria Navarez, the commissioner of the Mountain West, a couple weeks ago. And I said, you know, tell me about the deadline. Tell me how this works. She just sent me a link to the bylaws. She's a very reasonable person. And, by the way, she was deputy commissioner in the Pac-12 once upon a time. She Previously, though, her last job was at the WCC where she was dealing with Gonzaga. So um, I think she's a reasonable person, and I think you're right. I think if San Diego State said, hey, we want out, we're giving notice, and then they turned around and they said, hey, wait a minute, never mind. I think Mountain West would take them back in a heartbeat. So I think that's a good point. I think the bigger thing is San Diego State probably wants to create some leverage that gives – the Pac-12, a reason to make the move, right? They've been waiting, too. And so I think there is some incentive, some motivation by San Diego State to get that out there. And J.D. Wicker, who is the athletic director at San Diego State, I quoted him in my piece today at at johnconzano.com, but he said, I'm going to read his quote here. He said, uh, quote, We're still waiting on the Pac-12 to do what they need to do from a TV standpoint. But we're talking to lots of folks at the league level and athletic director level. And as we get a little closer, obviously, we'll continue to have good communication. And hopefully, we'll have everything locked down by June 30th. That's the day. $16.5 million exit fee if they give notice before June 30th. And I think um, I think the caller, Michael, is on the money. If I'm San Diego State, I'm privately huddled going, hey, look, we'll give notice regardless. So we don't pay the 33. But here's the other thing. Like if the Pac-12 drags and drags and drags, if I'm San Diego State, I'm turning to the Pac-12 and going, "Hey, you're going to pay the 33, not us." So you know, make a decision here. Are you fishing, or are you cutting bait? Uh, Dave and Vancouver's called in. He's got a peeve, even though we're not doing peeves today. But Dave, I, I'm all about you going into the weekend with a clear mind. What I do you got? I
4: appreciate it, John. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this would have been last week's peeve, but I'll turn it into this week's peeve. Okay. All right. So uh, two weeks ago, on a Friday also, it was the day you told people to call in all day long. And I had called in. You had actually asked uh, people to call in, what are you doing this weekend? And I called in with something else. And I said, hey, this is my third call and, of the day. And you said, uh, you kind of joked about it. You said, oh, I know what you're doing this weekend. You're going to call the show. All right. Well, ironically, the very next day, I went to call a friend, you know. Called, put it on speakers, <laughs> set my phone down, and it rang and rang and rang. And I thought, man, that should be voicemail. And I go look at my phone. I'm calling seven fifty. The game. All right, but here's my peeve: Why didn't you answer the damn phone?
3: Yeah, nobody, because we're not sitting around on the weekend. Because, well, I'm normal, Dave. I'm, I'm. I'm... You know, we're not we're not there twenty four hours a day. My I was probably at a CYO track meet or something.
4: I may have had a uh, pack twelve emergency or something.
3: And <laughs> well, if you have one, you you can wait, keep it for Monday. How about them apples? You know, sometimes look. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes before the show starts, like yesterday, I think it was yesterday, Stephen. We, I was kind of I was, was it was yesterday or Wednesday. It was Wednesday. Because I was – Kalen DeBoer was calling in on Wednesday's show, and I saw some email from an engineer at the radio station saying, hey, we're doing some maintenance on the phone lines. And I was like, I don't want Kalen DeBoer calling in and not being able to get through. So right before the show, I called in, and i got to be honest with you, it rang and rang and rang, and I was like, you know what? this is what the callers deal with? And then I hung up, and I waited a minute, and I called back, and then Stephen picked up. And I thought to myself, okay, the phones are working. I was just testing the line. But I look on weekends. I I don't. This isn't like we're not a football college football staff here. I don't want people sleeping at the office. I don't want Steven and Greg and uh, Adriana and uh, Chanel. I don't want. I don't want everybody who's working back there behind the scenes to be like you know having to spend their weekend here. I want you to have normal lives, Adam. Carl, you know, I Marco, I don't want Marco here on a weekend. We don't want that happening. So, I you know, I think if you are uh if you are, especially Nate, we want Nate home or doing whatever Nate I don't care what I don't even want to know what Nate does on the weekends. But, you know, if you have something that, that you are is that pressing that you need to share with us, I suggest that you call one of your good friends, see who picks up. If they're not picking up, we may have to have a conversation about how often you're calling your friends. Just saying. Okay? All right. Ben Golliver of the Washington Post is coming up on the next segment. Yeah, I think he's I think he's really good on the NBA. He is uh, he made the trip today from Denver where he was at uh, game 2 of the Western Conference Finals. How about Mike Malone saying basically i love what he's doing like there's some psychological warfare the denver nuggets coach is waging right now because he's saying everybody's talking about the lakers nobody's talking about nikola Jokic. everybody's it's all the talking about the lakers why don't we just go two and oh and smoke that you know i i love what he's doing because he's fostered this whole chip on his shoulder even though they're the one seed and so golliver's going to talk about it coming up plus uh We'll get our we'll get a fix on this series. Plus, we'll take a peek over at the East. I'll ask Gulliver what he thinks the Blazers should do. Ben Gulliver, Washington Post. Next.
4: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty the game.
3: Our next guest, I think, I think he's the best on the NBA. And, you know, he's got a big following as a national NBA writer, the Washington Post. He's an author. If you haven't read the book Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season, it's a good read. Uh, I think it goes down as kind of a time capsule, kind of captures what was happening in sports in an era that was really unprecedented. He's a great follow on Twitter. Ben Golliver joining us. I think he can talk about a multitude of things that I am interested in and I really appreciate his time. Are you fresh off a flight? When did you land in L.A.?
7: Oh, man, my head's spinning, John. It was uh, I went to Chicago for the draft lottery and saw Portland come up, you know, one ping-pong ball short of Wembenyama, but still get the number three pick. And then I was in Denver last night for game two, pretty dramatic win. And uh, now back in Los Angeles, getting ready for game three tomorrow in L.A. Kind of feels like a last stand for the Lakers. You know, if they don't show up, uh, it's going to be curtains. So it's just a lot going on this time
2: of year.
3: What do you make, I, you know, I saw Mike Malone kind of saying, he's cre- even though they're the one seed, he's created this, hey, we're the underdog, chip on our shoulder, nobody's talking about us, even though we're talking about them. I think it's it's good gamesmanship.
7: It is, but I, I think it's true, too. I mean, look, everybody knows the Lakers and the Warriors get talked about, and maybe the Celtics, too, approximately 100 times more than the average team, at least on the national level. And I think he had a point. I mean, coming out of Game 1, Nikola Jokic had unbelievable stat line. He got a lot of credit for that. I actually thought Jamal Murray played great in game 1 and didn't get quite enough credit for that, but so much of the focus was on the Lakers comeback, their defensive adjustment kind of putting Rui Hachimura on Nikola Jokic and, you know, trying to build the case that look, yes Denver won, but maybe the Lakers uh, have figured something out. I think he was spot on with that assessment. That's a lot of what I heard on, uh, you know, from the national level as well. What you saw in Game 2, though, was Denver actually struggle early rather than getting out to the hot start. And they were the ones who made the key adjustments down the stretch. They were the ones that showed more backbone, more discipline down the stretch. They were the ones hitting all the big shots in the late-game moments. Jamal and Murray going absolutely crazy in the fourth quarter, 23 of his 37 points in the fourth quarter. And they were making uh, Anthony Davis and uh, LeBron James. I don't know if they're making them look old, but certainly making them look tired in the key moments. So I think he was feeling himself. I I think Michael Malone likes the grandstand. He likes the stage a little bit. He likes to stand up for a team and and try to instill confidence in them. Given that that franchise has never made the NBA Finals before, and they truly believe there it's their it's their time. You know, you heard Jamal Murray say you know getting overlooked it's going to feel a lot sweeter once we win the championship like these guys are feeling themselves john they really have a lot of confidence and they're going to have a chance to go up and, and take a 3-0 lead tomorrow we'll see if they can do it
3: the most important player in game 3 in your mind uh, who's that player that this all sort of rests with right now
7: well you know to me the x factor for this entire series is actually ben murray i said that before the series started and the reason why you've got jokic versus anthony davis It's not that those two guys are going to cancel each other out, but you know you're going to get excellent offense from Jokic every night. You're going to get excellent defense from Anthony Davis every night. Those are going to be sort of the defining players for these teams, and they're great foils, right? I mean, Denver is the number one postseason offense. The Lakers are the number one postseason defense. It's a really nice match. But I think for Denver, when they really kick up to sixth gear, Murray is scoring, and he's helping them keep the pace going. And they've undefeated at home so far in the playoffs. Because they're in Denver, they're just running you at the altitude, they're pushing the ball down your throat, and then Murray is kind of uh, stepping on your throat uh, with, with the big time shots and the clutch moments, right? It hasn't always been quite that simple on the road. Uh, he's had a little bit more shooting struggle, some of their other uh, you know, supporting cast guys haven't shot the ball as well on the road either, and that's why he's so crucial, because the Nuggets are at their worst. When Nikola Jokic kind of gets turned into a one-man team, when he has to do all the scoring, when teams are able to kind of limit his passing ability, you just have to have that scoring balance. And when Murray is hot, everybody else feeds off of it. You saw he had a couple three-pointers in a row in the fourth quarter. What do you know? Boom, Michael Porter Jr. hits another back-breaking three-pointer right after that. So I think he's been the X Factor for this entire series. And if the Lakers can hold them in check, they've got a great chance of winning. But so far, they're 0-2 in that department.
3: If the Lakers are dismissed and they lose this series to the Nuggets, what does it do to their trajectory, their plan, Ben?
7: Well, it starts to become a very expensive summer because all those guys you brought in to say, hey, LeBron, we're going to try to give you one last shot at it. Hey, Anthony Davis, we're going to try to get you some help on the defensive end. All those guys are going to want to start to get paid, you know, and they're going to face some choices. I think Austin Reeves has, has solidified himself as a core member of this group. I mean, a completely overlooked player coming out of college. He's been great for them all season long. He's been super important for them in the playoffs. The guy can just flat-out ball, and they have to take care of him. But it's going to get expensive because I know there's going to be a lot of GMs around the league saying, this guy is definitely worth $20 million a year. I mean, he's rock solid. You can really count on him. He fits with anybody Plays hard on defense. He's a really skilled scorer as well. So he's going to get his money. I think the big question then becomes, well, can you afford to pay him and D'Angelo Russell, right? Or if you don't pay D'Angelo Russell or if he's asking for too much money, how do you fill that hole? Because it would be a problem position. That's why they went to go trade for Westbrook a couple years ago. They wanted somebody else who could kind of pick up that ball handling slack. And don't look now, Rui Hachimura has been on fire in the postseason. He's played great basketball. He's setting himself up for a nice payday, whether that's the Lakers or somebody else can kind of come and poach him from the Lakers. So, uh, you know, all of this fun uh, over the last couple of months since the trade deadline, it's been great for the Lakers fans. They're resurrected. They're so excited down here in L.A. Uh, They were so forlorn for like a year and a half when they had to watch Westbrook, you know, turn the ball over constantly and brick all these jumpers. Uh, they're loving life right now, but the, the problem is, you know, someone's going to have to pay the check at the end of this, and we'll see how expensive it gets.
3: Ben Goliver, Washington Post NBA writer, national NBA writer, is with us. Uh, you know, the criticism of the NBA years ago was, "Hey, it's predictable. We can always we can always pick who's going to be in the finals." Or general idea of that um, feels a little bit more like the NFL with the Miami Heat in the East. How good is this for the league to see the Heat doing what they have done to this point?
7: Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a little bit of an any given Sunday vibe when you've got an eight seed in the conference finals, up in the conference finals, maybe with a chance to uh, make the finals. Similar deal in the West. You know, the Lakers had to play in, you know, a play-in tournament. I mean, they're a seven seed looking to try to win the Western Conference from uh, that side of the bracket. We've rarely seen that in NBA history. I'll say this I get the benefits of parity for sure you know from the league offices perspective you always want teams to feel like they have a shot because that cuts down on tanking it cuts down on some of the uh, you know the late season injury issues quote-unquote teams like Portland have had these last couple of years where they're starting to run out these lineups so you don't even know who these guys are you know they, they don't have any NBA resumes whatsoever whenever teams have a chance Typically, it's going to be better for the fans. It's going to be better for the league as a whole, better for the television partners. You know, at the same time, I don't think you want to overcorrect too much here. I think a big part of what makes the NBA great is that it's a superstar-driven league. It's about the big personalities of the biggest stars. For years and years, it's also been a super team league, right, where you get the Heatles down in Miami or you get the Golden State Warriors, and then the rest of the league gets to have a good time and hate them. And what we've seen in the past is that drives huge interest and in, in huge rank, uh, ratings, television ratings, by having these big favorites who are, are targets that everybody else is trying to take down. And so you know, if we get into the scenario where it's just you, know, you can't really even make predictions about who's going to win because it changes so much and it's so random because the playing field is so level, um, I think there's benefits to it. But to me, it would be a very different NBA than what we've experienced for my entire lifetime whether that's Magic and Bird or Michael during the 90s or Tim Duncan and Kobe Bryant, those guys having their eras, straight on to LeBron and Steph having their eras. I think there's a possibility that the NBA could overcorrect here, and I think sometimes it's good to have those big targets to get everybody excited.
3: I heard one national writer say, hey, the West feels like it's wide open right now on a podcast. And I I said, "I I don't know if it feels that wide open. I think Denver is the one seed. They're gonna be back. Like, you know, am again I'm thinking about it from the Blazers perspective. It doesn't feel like it's wide open. How how wide open does the West feel to you moving forward?
7: Yeah, that's a tricky phrase, right? Because if, if you're saying wide open as, you know, there could be a bunch of different teams to, to win it next year, I could understand that. Now if you're saying, Hey, it's it's so easy to crack into the playoff picture, uh, you got another thing coming. I think a great example on that front would be the Dallas Mavericks, right? They make the Western Conference Finals last year. They're the bell of the ball, right? You know, Luka looks like he's the future face of the NBA. Everything's going great. They lose one key player in free agency. That would be Jalen Brunson. They can't really replace him. All of a sudden, they're making panic trades for Kyrie Irving. They're losing their mind, and boom, what do you know? They're tanking down the stretch of the season, getting fined by Adam Silver for it and missing the playoffs entirely, right? There's no thought in my mind that even going back as far as like January, they they would have uh, forecasted their season to play out how it did down the stretch, and so that makes it really tough. If you're on the outside of this party, uh, you know, looking in, it's going to be hard to kind of get back in there, especially when you've got some young teams that are really on the rise. You know, I look at Oklahoma City Thunder. I think they're going to be in the playoffs for years and years to come, you know, given how many draft picks they've accumulated, given how good Sheik just Alexander is, a similar deal for the Utah Jazz. They're, you know, they're, they're in the right direction of their rebuild, they're gonna be, um, you know, right there in the mix. And I even look like a team like San Antonio, and obviously they had the, the worst record, tied for the worst record in the, in the Western Conference this year, but you get a player like Wembenyama, you've got a proven front office, you've got a proven ownership group, uh, you've got a you know a hall of fame coach in, in Greg Popovich and you've got a lot of cap flexibility in future draft picks, you could build a nice team around Wempunyama in a pretty quick time period. And then the San Antonio Spurs are gonna be right back in that idea for uh, you know consistent winning and playoff spots. And that's why direction and ownership is so important to me, John, and I want to draw that contrast with the Blazers. Yes. You know, in Chicago at the draft lottery, I'm sure you saw, you know, Peter Holt Uh, as soon as they announced the Spurs get the number one pick, he yells out, let's go, and he's giving the big hug to Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum, right? Well, people dug up the photos, and they they put them side by side, and it was Peter Holt's dad, you know, celebrating getting the Tim Duncan pick, you know, (laughs) 20-something years ago, and then Peter Holt, the son, celebrating getting the Wembenyama pick. That's what stable ownership is all about, right? And I think you look at this Portland Trailblazer situation – um, are we sure, you know, someone like Jody Allen, is she going to be as excited? Is she going to understand the implications of getting a pick like uh, Victor Wembanyama? sort of like Peter Holt, uh, the younger, understood clearly? I mean, he was going on and on during his interview after winning that number one pick about what a big deal it was going to be for the franchise. He had clearly scouted Victor Wembanyama himself. He knew what kind of a teammate he was, what kind of a player he was. This is an invested small market owner trying to set his franchise up for another decade of success and we know paul allen if he had gotten the victor Wembanyama pick would have been screaming out let let's go right it would have been the greatest day of of his ownership tenure probably but what do we know about jody allen i'm not sure and and i think if you're an organization trying to crack back into the mix of the western conference which is so deep right now with good teams and and even younger teams on the come up you've got to have a clear direction from ownership You've got to have an invested ownership personality, someone who is able to chart that course. And I look at Portland, and they're one of those teams right there with the Houston Rockets in the Western Conference where I really question the ownership more than anything else.
3: Ben Golliver with us, Washington Post, NBA writer, uh, national NBA writer. Uh, The the Blazers get the three-pick. Damian Lillard's on record. He doesn't want a 19- or 20-year-old. I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, I appreciate his loyalty. But I'm not sure if you're the Blazers, if you trade the three-pick and Anthony Simons, that you can get uh, enough that makes you uh, moves the needle and makes you a contender. What are other teams, what are other executives you talk about saying about the Blazers and their predicament?
7: Well, first of all, John, let's look back at Blazers history, right? I mean, in terms of who are some of the most important players that have led the best eras of the Portland Trail Blazers basketball, right? Bill Walton, uh, Brandon Roy, uh, Damian Lillard himself, I mean, the list goes on. All these guys were really high picks, you know. Getting the number three pick is a great asset. It's not Victor Wimbanyama, but that is an opportunity to get a guy who sets you up for the next, uh, you know, 5, 10, 12 years if you you hit the right guy at number three. Um, There's even a big difference between, you know, who you could potentially get at number three and you know, a player like Shaden Sharp they drafted last year. You just go through history in terms of all the great players who have been available at number three. None greater than Michael Jordan himself, right? Portland learned that one the hard way by taking Sam Bowie number two, right? But um, there's so many Hall of Famers available at number three that you got to treat that thing like a piece of gold. And this idea that you're going to let any player, even a franchise legend like Damian Lillard, dictate you know what you might do with that pick to me, it's foolish. You know, I think you've got to make the, the best decision in this case is almost always using that pick on the best player available and being patient enough for that player to grow into, you know, an all-star caliber guy, which a lot of these top three picks do. So, um, I would try to just reframe this entire conversation if I was Blazers management. I don't want this narrative out there around the league that's all about, you know, Damian Lillard runs that show. You know, they're just going to do whatever they can to kind of build a a winner around Damian Lillard. You know, Damian doesn't want to play with kids. All of those things are, you know, in my opinion, negative to the um, perception of the organization as a whole, right? Like, it's not just Dame's team, right? The Blazers were there before Damian Lillard, and, you know, one day once he retires or moves on to a different organization, the Blazers are going to be there – after Damian Lillard. Blazers fans know this. You know There was before Walton and after Walton, before Drexler, after Drexler, before Brandon Roy, after Brandon Roy. This is how it works. And if you really want to set yourself up for success these next 10 years, put away the trade machine. You know, Get in the gym. Watch these young prospects and pick the best one you've got.
3: If Lillard pushes back, because I'm with you, Ben, I think you have to make that pick because that's your future. And I'm not mortgaging that to try to be sixth in the West and, you know, make Damien happy and sell a few tickets in the next two seasons. But let's just say Joe Cronin turns to him and says, hey, we're going to pick Scoot Henderson, and, you know, we feel like he's part of our future. And Dame says, you know, I want out. Is, you know, I don't need an exact trade, but the the leverage, the value at that point for Lillard in the league, um, you know, I saw Danny Ainge get multiple firsts uh, in that Donovan Mitchell trade last year. I, I start to think about, you know, what you could do with Lillard to to really set your future up. Um, as, as I ask you that, what crosses your mind?
7: Well, the first thing I would say is I'm not going to advocate that they should trade for Damian Lillard. And, and certainly, you know, they're, I don't as far as I know, they're not at that kind of a crossroads moment yet. But that could be coming, whether it's this summer or next summer. Just from Portland's standpoint, it's a heartbreaking decision to make to part with the guy. You know, the Blazers learned this, you know, dealing with the Clyde Drexler trade as well in the 90s. Like, it leaves a mark on the fan base. It leaves a mark on the organization. It's painful to to do something like that, right? But there's never been a better time in NBA history to trade a franchise-level guy because more and more of these players have asked for trades. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant. Those are just the recent, like, midseason examples, right? But the list goes on and on. Anthony Davis, James Harden multiple times in the last couple of years. So the market is set pretty darn well. Like, you just plug in how good is Damian Lillard. Well, he's not as good as Kevin Durant, right? But he's better than James Harden. And then, boom, that's what your price looks like. So you're going to be getting a lot of first-round picks for him. You're probably going to be getting a couple rotation players from him. And it's going to be for a team that's looking to add a star to a group that it feels like is ready to compete for a title if they're, you know, they're, they're feeling like they're one player away. And right now there's so many thirsty owners around the NBA trying to talk themselves into being one player away. I mean, look what the Phoenix Suns did. That, you know, Matt Ishbia was on the job for like six hours, and he traded mm-hmm. his entire you know, next decade of draft picks to grab Kevin Durant, and he's not even an outlier. He's just trying to keep up with the Joneses. Look at the Minnesota Timberwolves. Why in the world would they trade for Rudy Gobert? Well, they're just desperate to win. They want to win so badly. And so I actually think it's a good market opportunity for some teams to be on the other end of those trades. you think Utah's feeling great about the Rudy Gobert trade and the Donovan Mitchell trade? Absolutely. They're loving life. Even though they didn't get Wembenyama, even though they didn't even really tank this year, They're set up for a really nice five- to ten-year window because of those trades that they made. And uh, you don't want to rush into it. You don't want to do it too soon. Lillard's going to have significant trade value to me, uh, whether it's this summer, next summer, and even the following summer, because I think his shooting ability is so good that he's going to kind of, quote-unquote, age gracefully as he continues through his 30s. So I don't think you're in a huge rush to do it, but you do have to at least you know, think about that in the back of your mind and say, you know what? Like this could actually work out really well for us. You know, this is not like uh, you know the end of the road where like when Kevin Durant left Oklahoma City and it just like decimated their franchise because they didn't get anything back for him. Uh, the NBA market has evolved and it's a, a much more efficient trade marketplace. And uh, you know, usually if you're trading a guy, you're getting a lot of good stuff back these days.
3: I was talking to Bob Witsit, just have a casual conversation on another matter, and you know, I got on the subject of how difficult it is for a guy like Joe Cronin who has, you know, absentee ownership and very little proof of performance, maybe not the relationships that some of the other GMs in the league have and how difficult the job is. Do you have a sense on, you know, how, how much harder it is for Joe Cronin to get get out and get deals and make deals given that, you know, he's he's got very little proof of performance?
7: Well, I think the one thing he's got is a great, upbeat personality, and I think that commands a lot of respect. I, I've never really heard anyone else around the league have anything negative to say about him. Uh, I mean, seeing him in Chicago, I mean, it was a big, wide smile, knowing they got that number three pick because the mm-hmm. value of number three, like I was saying earlier, is significantly better than number five. Um, he got thrown into a tough spot. Like, It's not like he got groomed to be the Blazers' GM for 10 years in advance of that, right? I mean – The previous organization it was very much you know uh you know one guy's making all the calls and everybody else is sort of supporting that one guy and uh, once you took the guy out it's like all right well you know there's going to be a a real transition deal to try to kind of put these pieces back together um you know ultimately like you learn quickly you know because you're put into these tough spots you've got to make decisions on major trades like the cj McCollum deal You've got to go out there and try to find pieces who fit around Damian Lillard, like Jeremy Grant, and then you have to make those decisions, realizing that there's risk involved, and, and potentially you're going to have to sign those guys to big contracts down the line. So, I think he's done, uh, you know, fine for himself. Uh, you know, it's obviously a limited track record here since he took over. It hasn't really been all that long in NBA years, but um i think that uh, he's still trying to find that home run uh, piece you know that that guy who can really make the franchise uh, you know, a difference you know a needle mover as they call him he hasn't found that quite yet but um you know certainly when you're looking around the league and there's pat riley and there's the danny ages of the world and there's even rob felinka who's kobe's agent so he knows everybody around the league and has known him for decades that's that's tough competition just like it's hard to keep up with lebron and uh, you know, Steph Curry and those guys, like, I mean, it, there's some really, really heavy hitter GMs out there. And, uh, you know, they're the ones who are really driving a lot of these moves. And their organizations have some advantages from a market standpoint and, a, you know, wealth standpoint and an ownership standpoint that the Blazers just don't have.
3: Ben Golliver, you know, check out his book, fantastic book that came out. He really studied the bubble and what went on in the NBA's bubble, and uh, he is uh, the best in the NBA, I think, Ben. Uh, you do a fantastic job. Uh, I appreciate your time, Ben. Washington Post National NBA writer Ben Goliver. Thanks, Ben.
7: Oh, it's my pleasure, man. It's going to be a fun month for you guys up there, counting down to the draft. I can't wait I to see what happens.
3: I know. I, I hope they pick a player, Ben. I hope they do. Uh, I just I, I hope they think about their future as much as the everyone wants to focus on the now. Uh, Ben Goliver, thank you. There he is, Washington Post NBA writer. Great stuff. Really rich. Steven, uh, quick takeaways as you look at that. Oh, man. Preach, Ben. Preach. Like, the fact
5: when he said Blazers don't give in to Damian Lillard, like, that is exactly what they need to do. Uh, No offense to Dame. Like, Dame is awesome, but... They're not one move away, and to get the number three pick in the draft, as Ben described it as gold, like, it is really good, and the fact that there's going to be a Brandon Miller or a Scoot Henderson, those are two guys that, you know, everyone says you can build around. You can't waste it, and you want to, you know, and lose value on it and trade for a veteran that may help you get to the playoffs for a year or two by sacrificing the future. I, I'm with you, John. Like it's you explore
3: the trade of Dame.
5: If it doesn't work, you keep Dame and you have him for next season. But you got to draft a player. When you get the number three pick, you draft a player in that situation.
3: I just don't want to see them give up Anthony Simons and the three pick for a player that doesn't move the needle beyond maybe a season or two. And hey, they're the six seed or the seven seed, and woohoo! Like you know, I get it. That sells some tickets. It keeps them from you know being terrible. Maybe Lillard is fooled into thinking, hey, this is uh, a good short-term prognosis. But, you know, I, I remember when Brandon Roy, right before the Blazers gave him his max contract, the Blazers shopped him, you know. And Blazer fans, if they had found out about it at the time, would have flipped. But the Blazers looked around the league and tried to measure his value. And I think it was smart. It was one of the smart things that I think Paul Allen and his staff did at the time. Kevin Pritchard was part of that staff and he told me after the fact he said, you know, we explored a trade. And they want but they explored the trade with the mindset of let's see if he has max contract value. Like what kind of offers are we getting for Brandon Roy? Like I don't I don't think they were looking to give him away, but they they very quickly found out like hey, there's value for this guy. I think they need to like You know, stop the mindset that anybody's untouchable. I love what he said about there was life before Bill Walton, there's life after Bill Walton, there's life before Brandon Roy and after Brandon Roy. It's true. There will be life for Blazer fans after Damian Lillard, um, but I think you have to at least explore trading him, and I think you have to take the three pick and pick the best possible player. Leave it here.
4: Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
3: Well, my Saturday mailbag comes out tomorrow morning at johnconzano.com. Do you have a question for the mailbag? You can weigh in by going to the Bald Face Truth Facebook page and posting your question there, or on Twitter, if you'd like to post your question there, or uh, you can uh, shoot me uh, an email using johnconzano.com. I believe it's john at johnconzano.com if you want to shoot me an email and ask your question. Uh, best questions get published, and uh, there's no participation awards here. If you have a good question, I'll answer it. If you don't, I'm probably going to skip it. Uh, I want to thank everybody who works on this show all week long. We had great guests this week, including Kaylin DeBoer and Mark Madsen and Ben Golliver who you just heard. The Bald faced Truth is not here for a long time, just a good time.